Hi everyone, Anthony here. Brian and I would just like to say how extremely saddened we are by the death of singer Chris Cornell. We were both fans of his work, uh, but his death was reported between our recording the episode you're about to hear and today's release of that episode, so we'll discuss it more fully next time. Our condolences go to his friends and family. All right, on with the show. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we're listening to the first solo album from Ozzy Osbourne, 1980's Blizzard of Oz. Indeed we are. Um, uh, An album which I actually wasn't all that familiar with, uh, and we can get into that later, but yeah, this is... uh, I'd only previously heard maybe two, three tracks off this album. Um, oh really okay yeah right despite obviously last episode talking about how much of a huge black sabbath fan i am uh, i've never followed ozzy's solo career so this album was quite a sort of yeah you know uh quite of a not exactly a revelation but you know i just it was new to me which is ridiculous for an album that's over 30 years old (laughs) but i don't think that that's necessarily uncommon because even in some of the comments that we got when we said that we were doing this album for the show you know a lot of people I think a lot of people feel like Ozzy's overrated um, and that his sort of place in rock history outside of Black Sabbath is maybe only there because of Black Sabbath. You know what I mean? So, right. and, and so I think that some people uh, are not as big fans of his solo stuff. And, you know, for me, when I came into Ozzy's music outside of Black Sabbath and, and I came to Ozzy first, it was through MTV. It was through kids that were listening to albums at school and I distinctly remember that one of the first cassettes that I bought, because all of the music that I bought when I was a kid was um, basically through other people. There was kids at school that were older than me when I was in, you know, seventh grade or eighth grade or whatever, uh, who w- would sell cassettes. You know, they'd make their right, own copy right. and then they would sell their stuff at school. And I didn't realize that, the, you know, to me, they were brand new. And uh, Ozzy Osbourne's tribute album, the Randy Rhodes tribute album, was the first Ozzy album that I purchased because I bought the cassette off of some kid at school. So I basically got the greatest hits of Randy Rhodes. <laughs> and that was kind of one of my introductions. And then, of course, you know, seeing videos of like Bark at the Moon on, uh, you know, on MTV and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, that that was sort of what drew me in. So I, I came to Ozzy first. But um, but yeah, I think a lot of people don't um, who came to Sabbath first don't think of his solo career. They think of it as a far distant second. You know what I mean? Not like a 50-50 thing. Right, right. Yeah, don't you know home taping is killing music? <laughs> I know, right? I just, I just so, it, I, I'm sure I've told this story a million times on this show before, but literally the music store, and I was just at this music store this past weekend picking up a few albums, but the one, it used to be located next to the grocery store that I worked at when I was a kid. And my friend John and I, who I've mentioned before on the show, would go to this store every week after we got our check. And we would walk over there because we were 14, 15-year-old kids who had nothing else to spend our money on. And we would buy every new album that came out that week. And he would buy half of them and I would buy half of them. And then we would go to his house and he had a double cassette deck. And we would make copies of all the albums. And then so we all had copies of everything. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, I yep. used to do exactly the same thing with my yep. mates as well with albums and then C- later CDs and sure, yeah, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, when the first CD burners came out and you could actually make a copy of a CD, it was like oh no, mind boggling. I, I meant taping from CDs. Oh yeah, well in the radio too, loads, right? Yeah. yeah, I used to tape from uh, yeah, the radio yeah. all the time. Tape off yeah. the top forty, yeah, yep. yeah, hovered over the uh, pause button. Wait, uh-huh. so you try and end it before the DJ cuts in at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. That was your old man minute for today on this show. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. So this is the old man's heavy metal podcast. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So um, so before we get back into the album, let's do, let's do a bit of follow-up from the last episode, which was, of course, the Black Sabbath episode. Uh, first, we have three new patrons since that last episode. We have uh, Tim Medcalf, Greg Richardson, and Sean Atzapardi, who is a comic artist, a friend of mine, who... I did not expect to be listening to this, let alone become a patron. So thank you very much, Sean. Welcome. Uh, yeah, and thanks to everyone, as always, who supports the show and, and helps keep us thrashing. Uh, we, you know, you make it much easier for us to do this and to devote the time <laughs> to yeah, doing I mean, it. Absolutely. That that support is so huge. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you, Anthony, not to digress, but you've probably been following sort of the, the stuff that's happening with YouTube and advertisers um, the whole adpocalypse thing, but basically what's happening now over on YouTube is that a lot of advertisers have pulled their support on YouTube because of uh, basically their ads being put in front of objectionable content in their eyes. And so what's happened is a lot of the creators that are making money from ad revenue on YouTube have seen their revenue go down by two-thirds or more over the past few months, and and it's a combination of less advertisers uh, being on there, but also more of their videos being demonetized based on some of the content. And so there's a lot of turmoil in the um, creator world right now for people who get their uh, support primarily through YouTube. And ah. so I think Patreon is going to see another big boom uh, over the next you know several months because it seems like this ad situation is not going away right. um, because it seems like YouTube is going to move more toward um, – and I'm probably talking out of my ass, so people can take this with a grain of salt. But my understanding is that YouTube, with things like YouTube Red, is looking to do more content similar to what television used to be. Yeah. And so the independent creators who are currently making um, you know, smaller content and, and basically covering their costs through ad revenue and things like that, YouTube doesn't care as much about them. And so it doesn't look like what they're doing with the ads right now is going to stop anytime soon. So people are really scrambling to figure out ways to support what they're doing in a different way. And so I think more people are going to start flocking to Patreon because of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to a, to a whole generation, YouTube is TV now, isn't it? I'm sure your kids probably mm-hmm. watch more YouTube than actual, uh, you know, network TV. Without or, a doubt. Or, or even cable. Um, but isn't it also interesting that, I don't know if, oh God, it. One of the first people I remember talking about microtransactions, if you remember that term, on the oh, internet, yeah. was Scott McCloud, the comics writer and uh, oh, yeah. cartoonist. Of you know, Understanding and, Comics. Exactly, author of the seminal work, Understanding Comics. Yep. And he was one of the first people, I, not, you know, I'm not saying he was the first to mention it, but he was one of the first that I remember very, very early on talking about the concept of microtransactions and saying, you know, I think this could be the way things work in the future. And... You know, there was a lot of argument back and forth about whether that would be the case, and it's taken a long, long time. <laughs> you know, I'm talking maybe nearly yeah. 20 years ago that people started having this conversation. Um, but it does feel like we're getting there. It does feel like that is going to be the future, is sort of 
Well, yeah, directly supported, but not even paying for an individual thing. See, this is the difference, because on the one hand, you could say, well, isn't this just like it used to be where you're paying for things? But you're not, you know, with the Netflix Netflix model and Amazon Prime and Patreon model and stuff, you're not specifically paying for a thing. A lot of the time you're paying for a service. You are paying a sort of subscription, you know, and it may be a very, very small amount, but get enough people together paying that and that... Obviously, as we know, you know, Netflix, Christ, Netflix is spending more on TV next month than some of the major, you know, traditional American oh, TV producers. It's ridiculous. Spending billions of dollars. Right. And I think what you're going to see in terms of the the creators is more sort of networking situations. So like with uh, and I'm not sure exactly how the situation works with the incomparable but I think you're going to see more networks of creators who are coming together when it comes to things like ad revenue and 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 things like that, because for some of these creators on YouTube, individually now, because of the demonetization and the sort of content restrictions, they may not be able to get ads put on their videos or things like that. But if they're part of a network now, then maybe... So I think you're going to see the rise of the middleman here, where you have these sort of agents uh, in the middle who are saying you know, sign up with our network and we will get ads to put in front of your YouTube videos and we will make sure that you get avenue, uh, you know, ad revenue from your YouTube videos. So I think that I'm, I'm just kind of diving more into really learning about this now because we have like co-op critics, which I do with my friend Nick, uh, all of our stuff is on YouTube right now. And so for us, this is a situation where we are literally just starting to build an audience. You know, we have right, just right. over like 20, we have about 2,500 subscribers to our youtube page and we've we've only been doing this a little while and it's just starting to grow and then boom this hits and so we're now having those discussions of like maybe youtube isn't the best place for us to be you know sort of moving forward so it's interesting so but that all goes back to the notion that um for people to be able to support in any way creators directly is so much appreciated especially because there's so much uncertainty right now and everything is in flux and you know, e- even if you're just helping people cover the costs of hosting and stuff like that to be able to put content out, like it's it's a weird time for creators putting stuff on the web, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, this is what publishers and, you know, bringing it back to music, this is what lab- labels effectively were, was the, you know, not that anybody was subscribed, but the idea that like a network, you're kind of spreading the overheads uh, and, you know, a lesser selling artist might be effectively being subsidized by a higher right. selling artist because it's all kind of spread throughout the label. Yeah, that was the ho- that's the whole point of having a network or a label or an imprint or a publisher or whatever is the idea that you know, you ha- not everything's going to be a hit, but the things that are hits can subsidize the things that may not be massive hits but are still worth, you know, from an artistic point of view, worth making and putting out there and have their hardcore fans. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a weird sort of, on the one hand, it's a similar situation, but on the other hand, because creators themselves are going direct to the public rather than through a label or through a network and things like that, uh, for these, for Patreon and stuff and asking for financial assistance. It's just, it is such a weird time. Uh, for creators of all stripes. You know, I mean, I see this in comics all the time. People keep, 
you, I, you know, I've lost count of the number of times that people have said like, oh, I wish there was like a Netflix for comics. And I'm like, well, you, you may wish that, but if there is, believe me, the comics <laughs> landscape would look very, very different. Well, we talked about that with comicsology, right? Diffi- right. It would be very difficult to make a living right, in the way that many comic creators currently do from some, you know, if everybody was just subscribing to, you know, a Netflix for comics and the costs were all spread because right. you know in the same way that there are still people making a living from music but they're not making that living as we've talked about before in the same way as they were 10 or 20 years ago because the model has changed so much same thing would happen with comics you know the landscape would change enormously if uh if that became a dominant model so uh yeah, yeah you know and i'm not i'm trying not to sort of put a value judgment on it because right you you know these things can you say they're good or bad well you know there's upsides and downsides to it all but rest assured whether it's good or bad it would be very very different you know the comics landscape that you know would not continue to exist if that sort of netflix style mass subscription and then eat as much as you like became the dominant model and the difference now then sort of in the you know the music company days is that things are changing so fast now that it's more difficult for creators to get their feet under them and have any sort of uh foundation established before things change again and and the youtube situation is fascinating to me you look at some of the bigger youtube stars who let's just say in the past five years have established themselves as a real presence with millions of subscribers and that has become their full-time job where they're doing you know videos uh every single day and stuff like that imagine having your revenue cut by two thirds or more overnight overnight. And then just having to figure out like what, well, what happens now? It's, it's crazy to me. And uh, it's become like the life of an entertainer or like the career of an entertainer. Um, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I always remember an interview in Kerrang years ago when they were kind of at the height of their powers, uh, with, uh, Pantera's Vinnie Paul. Um, you know, Vinnie was famously sort of the most, business-minded of the group uh and he said very upfront very honestly he was like look because i think somebody i think the question i can't remember exactly but it was basically saying look you know you guys are touring all the time you know you've released a couple of like massive selling records you sell shitloads of merchandise uh you know you're sort of you're starting to get get a reputation for kind of really cashing in uh vinnie paul was like yeah and like the life the career, sorry, he, the way he put it was the career of a professional musician is a bit like a professional sportsman. You know, you if you're lucky, you will have a career that lasts 10 years. Right. You know, and that's if you're really lucky. And so you have to make as much money as you can in those 10 years because that may be all you make for the rest of your life. You know, that may be your retirement plan. Um, and yeah, it, it's getting that way even with normal people now. I say normal, you know what I mean? Sure. You know, with non-superstar people, people like you and I doing this, or people with a YouTube channel who, you know, hit something, have a bit of good fortune, and suddenly they've got a million and a half subscribers and are making a lot of money. They have to hustle and make as much money as they can because, yeah, in two years' time, suddenly somebody else will be the new shit and all the advertising might go away or whatever. And suddenly, that whatever they earned in those two years, that may be all they earn from right. creative endeavors for their entire life. Yeah, and then you add to that the whole, you know, discussion about there's only so much time in the day. 
there's only so much right. time in the yeah. day to create and there's only so much time in the day to consume. So on the consumer side, the fact that you can almost a la carte support the things that you consume on a regular basis is something that consumers have asked for for a long time. You know, like when it comes to cable and when it comes to all that kind of stuff is I just want to be able to get the things that I want and pay directly for those or support those directly. And so in that way, it's it's a positive thing because obviously people only have a certain amount of time in the day. Um, but it's the same thing for creators. Like you, you then are forced with the thing of like, what am I putting my time into the most? Because I only have so many hours a day to create, right. you know, and and so it's just it's a really interesting time. But to bring it back to the to the record company thing, and um, you know, just talking about how record companies have changed and everything, I look at a a, a company like Frontiers Records, and um, and the only reason I'm thinking about that is because I have two two albums in front of me right now. They are a company who, um, when you talked about subsidizing like smaller projects and stuff like that. They are bringing on a lot of bands who were big in the 80s who are still putting out new music today. So they're sort of uh, putting those records out. And then they are also putting out these sort of dream projects for members of those bands. And so they have this sort of interesting model right now. Like I'm, I'm looking at the new record from Warrant, which is uh, they were big in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, they just put out a new album this month and I haven't even had a chance to listen to it yet, but it's sitting here. So I have that new album. So they're putting out the new Warrant stuff, but they're also putting out stuff like uh, Tokyo Motor Fist, which is a band that has uh, the guitar player from Trickster and the lead singer from Danger Danger, which were two big, um, you know, 80s bands. And you look at some of the stuff like Michael Sweet is doing over there from Striper with George Lynch. They're doing the Sweet and Lynch sort of thing. So they're they're sort of creating a model where they're doing uh, releases from bands that are known, but also having those artists do these sort of smaller projects that are, uh, you know, interesting. I think Rat Pack, Rec- Rat Pack Records is another one of those, um, right? You know, companies that is doing sort of the same thing. So, so they're figuring it out too. You know, and and Frontiers has now become like the a destination for people who are huge fans of the '80s stuff because there's a lot of musicians from that era that are now working with frontiers and it's interesting to see like you it's almost like the the movie uh studio model where you have the director who does the triple a blockbuster movie in order to get his smaller project financed or her yeah. smaller project financed you know so it's it's one it's, for the studio one for me exactly and i think that frontiers records is a place where you can literally see that happening which is yeah. kind of cool I, I think it's really interesting that the the one sort of the only thing, you know, and it is cliche to say it, but it really is true at the moment. The only thing you can rely on is that everything is changing. Um, You know, there is, as you say, there's no way to kind of settle into a business model because they're constantly changing all the time at the moment, which is on the one hand, really exciting, but on the other hand, you know, yeah, really stressful. (laughs) And and exhausting, right? But you you mentioned like that that constant sort of need to hustle. I look at a guy like Michael Sweet, who uh, obviously lead singer of Striper, writes a lot of the music for Striper. They're still making music now, but he also has all of these. He just put out another solo album. He does the, uh, the stuff with George Lynch. Like that dude never stops writing and recording. And he's got something new coming out all the time. And some people look at that as a negative thing. But when you look at a band like Striper, who had their heyday back in the 80s and probably still sell a decent number of albums now, but they're in no position to, you know, as Vinnie Paul said, like that, that it's a constant, you know, sort of yeah, hustle. The, to, their, to, their, their main career is effectively over, and now they're living on people who loved them in the 80s correct. and still love them. They're not getting new fans. 
or not in any appreciable amount anyway. Right. And so like a guy like Michael Sweet, is con- he's producing albums, he's constantly recording new stuff, working with different artists and stuff like that to, to have his stuff out there as much as humanly possible. And then, of course, touring, which is where most bands, you know, make now their, make their, make money, their yeah. money. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a crazy world. Anyway, there's a bit of a digression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but interesting. I mean, yeah, it is. You know, we do talk about the business a little and, you know, we should remind people you and I are not industry insiders you know we we may have had conversations with people who are we may have occasionally you know sort of met or gotten to know people who are but we are not you know uh, so forgive us if you are an insider and you you know you think we're talking out of our asses but if you are let us know um you know we've uh, let's go through that now so how can people get in touch with us we have got the facebook group which is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh, we are both on Twitter. You can get those, uh, our Twitter and our email actually addresses by going to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Uh, it's got all the links there as well as, you know, show archives and stuff. Uh, and of course the Patreon talking about that. Uh, now the Patreon is at patreon.com slash thrash it out. And, uh, yeah, so you can, if we are full of shit, you know, find us at one of those places and, uh, and tell us. Um, and w- one final bow I just want to put on that <clears throat> is that, um, you know, because I, when I think of like independent comic book artists and writers who have used uh, not only social media, but the whole podcast scene and everything back in its early days, I always use you in, as, as an example of when Wasteland was first coming out, how you really had such a great grassroots movement of connecting with podcasts and sort of doing interviews and stuff like that. You were one of the first interviews that we ever did for secret identity and, and things like that. And I'm seeing now a lot of these labels like frontiers records who are starting to utilize that system as well sort of thing. Yeah. Very much so because like even for record companies getting their signal out amongst the noise is so difficult that they've turned to podcasts and music blogs and people who still care right about music you you can't reach everyone anymore that's the thing you you can't just put a commercial on the tv and assume that 70 percent of the nation is going to see it that's not that's not how it works anymore and so yeah especially if you are uh you know somebody who is how can i put it somebody who was big but is now not so big you you need to find that audience that still cares and that is into the thing you're doing because right. your growth potential is very limited. But what you have got is the potential to get people who are already into the sort of thing that you do and say, right. I do that as well. Give that a try. Yep, absolutely. It's uh, As you said, it's just a super interesting time right now. Yeah. Um, talking actually about the Facebook group, one of the things I want to mention, and I know the Facebook group is more your domain. I'll ask you about it in a moment, but, uh, I, we talked about the, uh, on the last episode about the metal instrumental and we had a bit of a sort of like wondering what is the first metal instrumental, uh, the first truly metal instrumental. Um, uh, because I suggested that the earliest one that I could think of was call of Cthulhu from Metallica's ride the lightning. Um, yep. But we had a couple of people on the Facebook group both point out that Transylvania from Iron Maiden's very first album, uh, their eponymous first album, uh, predates it because that's four years before Ride the Lightning. Now, I, I looked into it and Transylvania was apparently originally meant to have lyrics, but 
but it doesn't. You know, it, it, there, were, there were lyrics, it was going to be a normal song, and then for some reason, whatever that reason was, they just decided, no, sod it, let's not put any vocals on it, and just released it on the album as an instrumental. So, you know, I suppose if you're pedantic, you could argue, well, it wasn't meant to be an instrumental, but the fact is that it is an instrumental, it, it's, and it's very definitely metal. It's not like a blues jam or something, as we talked about before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe that is the first really true metal instrumental. Um, so if anybody can think of one earlier than 1980, let us know. Let's see how far we can, how far back we can go with this. But I, you know, given that I couldn't think of anything earlier than Call of Cthulhu, um, you know, and now, yeah, Transylvania, I can't think of anything pre-1980 that would count as an, as a, as I say, not like a blues jam, but a true, what we would now think of as metal instrumental. Uh, so yeah, let us know if you can think of something earlier. Cause I certainly can't. Well, we got a lot of feedback on the black Sabbath episode. So I'm just going to read a few comments here. Uh, let's see. Daniel said, wait a minute, this isn't mob rules. Okay. I'm done with this. <laughs> he said, I'm done with this joke. I just wanted to get it out of my system. Looking forward to the episode. Uh, and let's see who else. Stuart said, while paranoid wasn't the first metal I heard number of the beast takes the crown. It's one of the most enduring, probably listen to it more than nearly all albums in my iTunes library, and it's always fresh. Um, that, that to me, is a Desert Island album. You know, and we talk, right, we've yeah, talked yeah. about that a few times, of like, it never gets old to you. You can always go back and listen to it. Uh, Jack said, I'm amazed Anthony has never seen Sabbath Live. I saw the original lineup, including Bill, at the download in 2005, and they kicked ass. Mind you, I was only 15 in 2005, Anthony, who's 15. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I think some, yeah, it doesn't matter. No, the those early memories are the best. I mentioned on the last show, I think, that I had just seen Anthrax in concert. And the last time that I saw them in concert was in 1991, when I was 17 on my birthday. I saw Anthrax. Yeah, yeah. And I saw I saw Anthrax play. And Jack was one. <laughs> uh, with Megadeth and, and Slayer at the clash of the Titans, but those memories last forever. Those early con in my first concert, ACDC and white lion. I'll never forget that. Amazing. Amazing yeah, yeah. stuff. No, exactly. Yeah. Just because you were young and you may have been sort of, you know, not yet jaded by <laughs> metal right. gigs. It's or better. I, yeah. I don't think that invalidates the experience at all. If, if you had a great time and you thought they were great, brilliant, you know, then they were great. That's Absolutely. all that matters. Yep. Uh, Dijon said, guys, you did hit my soft spot with this one and described exactly what I love so much. Heavy metal, hard blues rock mixture with a feel of a jam. And nobody has done it better since the first three Sabbath records. So strong opinion there. I, I, I guess that's probably true. I'm not as much into the whole blues jam stuff as, as I mentioned last episode, but if that is your thing, then yeah, that's probably true because, yep. you know, it, Tony Iommi for heaven's sake. Right. Uh, Dan said, so I'd never listened to a Black Sabbath album before this. I'd listened to a bunch of Sabbath for sure, but it was always in compilations and mixes and best ofs. When I got my first ever MP3 player, this was the 90s, it was only 64 megabytes. Paranoid <laughs> was one of the songs that I first loaded on there. It turns out that Paranoid the album is a bunch of great Sabbath songs. Planet Caravan, uh, that is a good stoned out hippie tune, but not really Sabbath, and also Rat Salad. So he overall... Uh, like the, it kind of goes back to what you were just saying about this Ozzy album. Like you, you've heard songs from it, you right. know, so, but, but to take in the whole album is kind of a different experience. Uh, Joseph Carr said Iron Maiden for the instrumental question, Anthony. 
So we did get some feedback on that. Phil Toretto said, listening to this episode, I... Uh, oh, my computer wants to restart, and I'm not going to let it. He said, listening to this episode as I type, and I'm just absolutely loving every minute of the discussion. He said, all I keep saying is, yep, so true, and F yeah. <laughs> Forgot how much I love this album. I keep pausing the podcast to listen to each song in its entirety. And what I think is great about this is that Phil is usually on board with me because he's a hair metal guy. But this time, like, he was totally dialed into everything that you were saying. Yep. <laughs> he, he said, a uh, couple of my thoughts, Paranoid and Iron Man are the first two songs I learned to play on drums when I was 13. Number two, I actually don't like Bill Ward's style, and I think Rat Salad justifies my dislike of it. Um, I just think he's not that good. When I saw them on their first reunion tour in 98, he was really off and struggling. He said, I'm not a big Bill Ward fan. Uh, he said, I discovered Black Sabbath after Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman and had no idea Ozzy was in a band previously. He said, hey, I was 12 and it was 1982. Cut me some slack. And that, <laughs> but that's a good point in that, t- like, today, it's almost incomprehensible, like, maybe not with that specific example, that, but, like, that someone wouldn't know something like that. You know right, what I mean? Right. Because the information is everywhere. You just jump yeah. on Wikipedia, you can follow someone's entire career in life now you can go back and read about ozzy's entire life uh, his entire biography is is right there for you but back in the day all we knew w- was what we read in heavy metal magazines what our friends who were in our same circles told us and what we heard at the local music shop like that was right. your that was your information as far as like what what the history of some of these bands were who they were if they were in something else before um well, and, and do you remember do you remember band biography books? Yeah, I'm not even sure if they're even still a thing now in this you know in, in this age when everything's on the on the web. But do you remember you know? And they were expensive. That's the other thing. You'd get a book, you know, basically charting the history of a band, complete with photos. Martin Popoff normally does by those. a music journalist. Yeah, and they weren't cheap. They were expensive books, but they were like the Bible. I remember I had a few of them, and I would read them over and over and over again. You know, for my favorite bands. Um, and because they were, as you as you say, you there was nowhere else to get this information, so they were a vital source if you were into that of right. finding out what these people were like. And I do, and those do still exist. Uh, I believe it's Martin Popoff that does them, uh, d- has done a ton of them on not only on particular bands but on particular albums. Um, right. There's there's also a series that delves into different albums from different perspectives and stuff like that. Um, which I'll have to grab the name of. But uh, yeah, I think that what's cool about those nowadays is that, yep, you can go on Wikipedia, you can get this information. But for a lot of us, like for our favorite bands, we want that love letter on our bookshelf. And so I think those are kind of coming back into style a little bit more because I feel like today, maybe this is our (laughs) episode where we're talking about all these different philosophical topics, but I feel like today, (laughs) because there's so much content out there, like when I find something I really love, I want to capture it. You know what I yep. mean? Like I want to yeah, have yeah. it. And so I've started collecting. I got rid of CDs five or six years ago. I got rid of all my CDs and I went completely digital. Now I'm rebuilding a collection of the stuff that I love the most and that I want to Just keep. Just the really special same stuff. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. same thing with, with, I would say, books and with graphic novels and stuff like that is I have this sort of you know, is this bookshelf worthy? Is this something I want to hold on to? And I think for bands that we love and albums that we grew up listening to and stuff like that, there is that thing of like, man, if someone wrote a book about that, I would totally want that on my bookshelf because they're, 
you know, at my age now, I can say they're definitively one of my favorite bands ever, or that's definitively right. one of my, you know, favorite albums ever. And so um, I, I think that the the physical content is now more than ever coming back as like the special edition of the thing that you love. And so if you really love it, you get that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because uh, almost 10 years ago now, at WonderCon, back when WonderCon was in San Francisco, uh, I was on a panel with a few people uh, talking about sort of, you know, the future of comics and digital and all that sort of thing. And I said that I thought, and this was quite controversial at the time, <laughs> I, I said, I reckon within 10 years, uh, the dominant model will be that you read monthly issues digitally and then buy a hard copy of the collection. And we may even stop producing physical copies of single issues altogether. Now, obviously, 10 years later, that hasn't happened, but but we are getting there. Oh, I you know, think you're like, totally we, right. Yeah, the, my time frame was off, but I think that is what I still believe that that is what the future will be. And... Yeah, and at the time that was quite controversial, and I got a look, quite a bit of pushback and people arguing with me. And I'm like, but but not from industry people, right? From fans, industry people were all like, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Yep. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of fans that really didn't like that idea and, and argued vociferously. But it, we are not far off that, you know. No. And look at the resurgence of vinyl in music. We've talked about this before. It's the same thing. Everybody listens through Spotify or Apple Music. Yep. Or you know, uh, even YouTube, or even if they do buy, they buy digital tracks through iTunes. Right. Um, you know, which you can, or yeah, you can still do that. I think. Yep. And same thing um, on Amazon. You can buy individual tracks. Right. Right. But, but if you want the special edition, yeah, then you go and buy the vinyl or there's even people trying to bring back cassettes for heaven's sake. I mean, Oh my God. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> and I'm one of the idiots that will buy this crap is that there is a, device now that basically fits over it, it's probably no, oh no it's no, no, no bigger know, than a money clip yeah i i've seen it i've seen it but uh because i yeah i saw i think it's a kickstarter project or something yes. um yeah but i have serious issues with that front and call me debbie downer but you look at that and what do I see? I see tape exposed. You are to the so elements. exactly like me. That's the first thing that I said when I when I saw that thing was, huh? That's a cool idea. But oh my god, three quarters of the tape is exposed the whole time. Yeah, and yeah. not only that, but the spool support pins don't exist. Like if you look for for old older people, will know what we're talking about. <laughs> Younger people go and look at a picture of a cassette. And if you ever wondered what all those holes at the bottom are for, right. a lot of them are spindles that support the tape right. as it rolls through the rollers and the magnetic head that reads the sound. Yep. Um, if Without those, there is a serious chance of that tape just dropping out and warping. And yeah, I, the whole concept seems fundamentally flawed to uh -huh. me. <laughs> yeah. But, but your initial reaction is like, holy crap, cassettes again. And then you're like, mm, right. yeah, no, okay. Uh, cassettes i mean you know cassettes were great from the perspective of being portable yeah uh you know thanks to the walkman uh obviously being you know much smaller than vinyl and the fact that you could make compilations and stuff but really in this day and age there is no reason i i do not understand you know, vinyl i can understand i genuinely can understand because if you've got a big physical artifact with lice yeah big artwork and stuff and that, that's my number one reason and i and i don't have a vinyl collection but that would be my number one reason for collecting vinyl is simply for the album packaging alone 
Right, it's the artifact, exactly. Yep. But with a cassette, a cassette is even worse than a CD <laughs> <Yes>. for that. <laughs> you yeah, know, right, right. The liner notes are smaller, the, the, yeah. the pamphlet's smaller, absolutely. Yeah, it's like CD, sorry, cassette has literally no advantages over any other medium now. Now that we have the ability to, you know, make playlists and our um, right. music, digital music players, and we have digital music, and we can burn CDs even if we want to. There is no reason to carry on cassettes. There really isn't. <laughs> Uh, okay just a couple more comments from the youtube page tony said such a great episode guys really insightful on various points and whilst i tend more toward anthony's views on this one planet caravan is great and showcases iomi's range at the end with the jazzy solo it was nice to hear such genuine appreciation from brian a point that i'd add regarding the discussion of the simplicity of riffs like iron man and smoke on the water yes they're simple but most people play them incorrectly Smoke on the Water, for example, is played finger-style by Blackmore, so both strings are plucked individually at once rather than strummed with a pick, and Iron yep. Man, and most of Iomi's riffs, is played on the bottom two strings high up on the fretboard rather than the more obvious option of playing on the A and D strings lower down. That's what gives him his trademark thick tone. A lot of budding guitarists miss this. You can see it here in this excellent footage, and he linked to a video about that. So I think that's a fantastic point on multiple levels. A, because he so clearly explained that for uh, people who are not musicians like me, but also because it gives you a greater appreciation for something that sounds simple, but really there's a layer of complexity to it that you may not initially recognize. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, uh, not jump in the fire, seek and destroy uh, from Kill em All. Yep. Same thing. Uh, you can play that down the bottom of the neck if you really want to, but that's not how Hetfield plays it. He plays it way up on the neck on the bottom couple of strings, and that's the same thing. That's how you get that big, fat sound, even though there are some quite high notes in that. It's still, you know, because it's being played on the bottom strings, it's a big, fat riff. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the best riffs on Kill em All, and that, I think that sound is part of the reason for it. Uh, and the... Plucking the two strings at once thing um, just reminded me uh, randomly of uh, the My Dying Bride album that we did. Uh-huh. Um, Turn Loose the Swans, the second track, Your River, which is the one that has like three and a half minutes of instrumental before any vocals start with like 10 different riffs in it. The opening riff of that is the same thing. Uh, and it never occurred to me until I read that comment that I wonder if that is something that, that the guitarist thought you know, oh, this is what Blackmore did. Maybe I'll try that, you know, because, you know, sure. that sort of, if you remember the riff, it's the one that sounds almost like a sort of medieval-ish, yep. uh, you know, and in lots of echo. Um, and that's the same thing, because I learned that, and that's the same thing. You you pluck both strings at the same time and slide around on them on the fretboard. And yeah, I I knew that about Smoke in the Water, but I hadn't sort of made that connection. Then I read that and I thought, oh, hang on, I know another song that does that. Yes, of course. I wonder if if there was a bit of inspiration there. So yeah, as you say, simple riffs played differently can give them an extra layer that you may not consciously be aware of when you're listening, but I, you know, I think they do just make the sound more complex and therefore more interesting. Well, and just overall, like it, there's so many, you know, little sound effects in that paranoid album. And when you listen to this Ozzy album, there's some things in this album as well, that when you listen, especially to a lot of those, um, I don't want to say just like 70s and 80s albums, but there's this level of experimentation with different types of sound and yeah. effects that are put into songs and stuff like that, that I I think 
I think on a couple of reasons. One, because things in some ways are a lot cleaner in terms of production, you know, sort of where we're at now, but also um, a lot of mainstream bands don't experiment with that stuff as much, it seems like to me, in, in a lot of the music right. that I listen to. So it's kind of cool to go back and listen to, like, what is that sound effect or how did they get that particular sound or how are they, you know, what's their, what's their setup that they're getting this particular guitar tone and stuff like that. It's like, there's, there's so much, there's so many little tidbits in each one of these albums to kind of dig into that. Well, it's awesome. Part of that is you have to remember that the time in which they were done was, it was so long ago (laughs) now that like Sergeant Pepper was, what was that? 1967. So that wasn't even five years before those first two Black Sabbath albums. Right. Not even five years between Sergeant Pepper and Paranoid uh, and the eponymous Black Sabbath. So the idea of using the studio as a recording instrument, right? you know, and mucking around and experimenting in that way was still relatively new. Like that would be, I mean, what are we in 2017? So 2012... God, I can't even think, but that would be like, I don't know. Look at, look at how quickly say, uh, dubstep, yep. you know, sort of like hit the mainstream and then suddenly it was everywhere and then it went away and that didn't even take five years, <laughs> you know, uh, it's because again of this acceleration, but you, you think back then that would be kind of the equivalent. Imagine if somebody just invented that sound in 2012 right, and exactly. now, five years later, of course, people are still going to be messing around with it. Um, so all of this stuff was so new at the time. Uh, you know, it's easy to forget that. Well, and, you... and just the fact that you couldn't sample it off the internet five seconds later, and then well, it, it shows up on every single album <laughs> over the next two years. Like that, that yeah, it, that's it, it, it meant that there was a higher chance that there would be something really unique, even amongst albums that were in the same genre. Yes. Because of that, and also because this was a time of the evolving rock and heavy metal like being born. So you have this sort of straddling the line of almost two different genres, you know what I mean? And that, I feel like this Ozzy album, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, kind of gets into some of that stuff too. And it's just, it's you can hear the time in these albums. Like you can hear the time that they were made. And that's yeah. what's awesome about kind of going back and listening to them, so... Well, and I think that's one of the uh, sort of uh, artifacts, if you like, of the pre-digital recording yes. era. Uh, you know, where we're at, or pre, yeah, pre-all digital, I should say, because we're at a point now where, you know, yes, tools are getting better all the time. But once we reached a point, and it was probably about, what, 10, 15 years ago now, we reached a point where everything, there is no need for, and I'm not saying people don't ever still use them, sure. but there is no need for actual physical amplifiers and cabinets and stuff to record guitars. There's no need for real drum kits in real drum kit rooms. Uh, You know, all of these sounds can be reproduced electronically and sound exactly as they would have if they were recorded in an analog fashion, Uh, except, you know, that the tone is always perfect. Right. The sound is always perfect and there's never And I kind of hate that. Imperfection. Well, right, sure. But as a result of that, it's very difficult, other than trends, other than because of the sort of trend of the music, it's very difficult from a purely sonic perspective, I think, to listen to anything from the last 20 years and actually say, oh, yeah, that was clearly recorded in, like, the early 2000s or, you know, the late 2000s or whatever. Whereas 
And yes, this Ozzy Osbourne album is a good example of it. You know, you can listen to something from the early 1980s and go, oh, wow, yeah, that was recorded in the early 80s. Yep. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, all right, just a couple quick more com- uh, comments. Andrew said, great episode, and it's nice to have an excuse to listen to the whole album. I must confess, over-familiarity with the big tracks on this album means I rarely play it anymore. Uh, he said, Black Sabbath or uh, it's Masters of, of Reality, right, are my usual go-tos that he he said. Uh, and the less thrash tracks feel quite fresh, and even the big hits are good to come back to after a break from them. Um, yeah, Martial Reality is the third Sabbath album, the one that right. followed Paranoid, yeah. Uh, Darren said, love this album. It's definitely one of my earliest forays into metal, and I feel like I'm in the minority because though side A is loaded with hits, it's actually the deep cuts from side B that I love the most. Hand of Doom and Electric Funeral are extremely definitive Sabbath in my mind, and my love for Fairies Wear Boots is inexplicable. I was thrilled that they were still playing this track on the farewell tour, although nothing could top my excitement when they started playing Dirty Women from Technical Ecstasy. Ozzy Era <laughs> Sabbath was such an important and, yes, imperfect blueprint for the genre. My appreciation for what these four effing nerds managed to create here knows no bounds. I love the love in that post um, because you could tell how much it means to him, and that's awesome. And so clearly, like your goal with picking that album was to pick an album that not only had a huge impact on the genre, but had a huge impact on music fans. And clearly oh, yeah, from yeah. the response that, you know, people have put to the album, this is one of those albums that had that deeply affected people. Unlike Technical Ecstasy, <laughs> which was not Sabbath's greatest hour. <laughs> and what it's I a, really it's like- a later album and oh my my dad had that. So I that was Technical Ecstasy was an album that I listened to like sort of early in my, you know, life in my metal discovery phase because my my father did own it but even even at that young age i was like yeah this is not very good (laughs) uh the last two i'm going to read andy said there's a bit where brian mentions that he knows some of these songs but not the whole album and that's an interesting point whenever possible i try to listen to whole albums and avoid greatest hits or single sets in fact i almost always avoid bonus tracks as well this is a lesson i learned when i first started listening to david bowie uh, basically, Bowie is the kind of artist that if you only ever heard the radio hits, you'd be hugely missing out. His catalog is very diverse and strange and deep. Most of my favorite songs of his you'd never have heard if you aren't familiar with the albums. I Well, I, I mean, I agree that you should always seek out the albums, but I disagree that you shouldn't, you know, that you should dismiss uh, singles collections or indeed bonus tracks because singles collections are a way for people to get into bands. Oh, for they're like, sure. They're, there are bands I really like now that yep. I got into through compilation albums. Well, and in fact, even I said Black Sabbath were on a that Paranoid track was on a compilation album, you know, and I loved it so much that I then raided my dad's record collection. Right. Um, so I think that's you know I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, if it's all you listen to, sure, of course you're missing out, you know, but I don't think it's bad as a discovery mechanism. And bonus tracks, I mean. Yeah, I understand, you know, if it, you, cause there's a tendency to think, well, if it wasn't good enough to put on the album, why should I bother listening to it? But on the other hand, and especially in the case of somebody like Bowie, it's more Bowie. And I would you argue know? it's the same in this case as well with this Ozzy album that we're about to talk about because my, so I have a couple thoughts about that. One, I totally agree with you, Anthony. It is a way to discover bands. And I think back in the day when we, all we had was the radio that's how you got introduced through the singles. And so you, you that was the only way you were going to find them. I think nowadays it's easier to seek out whole albums or to kind of avoid that stuff. I, I tend not to listen 
overly to singles. So if I hear something and I like it and I decide that I'm going to check out that band, I try not to let that single get played out for me much the same way. Like I don't want to watch the trailer for a movie more than one time um, because it starts to, it starts to affect my enjoyment of the overall movie. Like if I see something and I know I want to see it, I'm done with that. It's the same thing with video games. Like I don't want to see. Right. Cause otherwise you're anticipating, Correct. you're sitting watching the movie going, when are they going to get to that? Bit? Yeah. Oh, it's that bit. It's coming up. It's coming up rather right. than enjoying the movie. Yep. Same thing with games. If I see something and I'm like, Oh, that looks interesting to me. I'm probably going to pick that up. Then I don't want to see 15 different let's play videos of it before it comes out because I don't want to know right. a, a lot of that <laughs> stuff. So, um, yeah, but it, and as we've talked about before, like my preference is always for the full album, and and the reason is because that was put together in a certain way for a reason, and I want to hear the story that the band is telling me. So I always prefer the album, uh, and I agree with certain artists what came out for their singles, and especially for a lot of '80s artists, it's not representative of their overall sound. A lot of '80s artists, their biggest hit was their ballad, and right. if you only listen to that, then you would not know that that was the slowest and in some cases the worst song on the entire album and the rest of the album sounds a lot better than that so well and talking about b-sides uh sorry about bonus tracks a lot of them of course used to be b-sides back yep. when you know again old, old man time back when we bought seven inch singles and the like you know that's what b-sides were were effectively outtakes from an album uh and sometimes they were pretty awful um but you know sometimes they weren't and sometimes I can think they were better several right exactly i can think of several records where i played the b-side way more than the a-side i'll give you two examples right now off of def leppard's hysteria album uh there is a song called ring of fire which is one of the heavier and faster tunes that def leppard had done that sounded very much like high and dry slash pyromania era era def leppard that never made it onto hysteria it was a b-side and there's another song called ride into the sun which was another song that was better than three quarters of the songs on hysteria so had i not picked up those singles and heard the B-sides, I would have been even more disappointed with Hysteria than I was because uh, some of their harder stuff was consciously left on the cutting room floor or used as a B-side because they were going for a particular sound on that album. On the, on the whole album, yep, yeah. absolutely. Um, the only example, of my mind's gone blank, and the only example I could think of uh, that came to mind is not metal at all. It's men without hats. <laughs> Who are awesome. I have their, I speaking of greatest hits collections, I have their greatest hits collection. Uh, I love men without hats, yeah. but they're, they're the, the song everybody knows them for, of course, is the safety dance. But sure. The B, the B side of safety dance is a song called security. That's this really strange, slightly sinister, not at all sort of like upbeat dancey thing, like the safety dance at all. And I love that. I mean, I love still love the safety dance, but I love that B-side, and it's not on any albums at all. So, you know, these days, that would be a bonus track on, like, the Japanese CD reissue or something. Um, I will forever prob- associate Men With Hats by that particular song, Safety Dance, and the video that went along with it, which was very yes. sort of Ren Fair uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. influenced uh, <laughs> I will forever associate that with the show, Friday Night Videos, which aired over here in the States and was my first intro to music television because it wasn't, it was a network show. I think it was on NBC. And uh, so it would right. come on Friday nights, Friday night videos. Um, in fact, I used to do a blog before we started doing this podcast called Sunday night videos. That was an, a nod to that. And um, it was, I, I just love that show. And that video was in such high rotation that there was never an episode of Friday night videos that went by where I did not see safety dance. God bless the Quebecois. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> let's, let's talk, let's talk about Aussie then. So, uh, okay. So, Blizzard of Oz, 
1980, it was released. Yes, uh, fa- Famously after he was fired from Black Sabbath. Correct. Um, and, uh, yeah, so obviously the first album after he gets fired from Black Sabbath, it was released September 12, 1980. It has sold over 6 million copies at this point. Wow. Um, and what's interesting about that is it has sold, it has outsold Paranoid by over a million copies as of recent. Um that doesn't surprise me. It saddens me, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> well, so what's interesting about that is uh, one of the things that makes this a special album for me, and, and I'm, we're going to talk a lot about Randy Rhodes, but one of the things that makes it a special album for me is that Ozzy did what Dave Mustaine couldn't do. Ozzy was in one of the biggest bands in the world and got kicked out and then made an album that was more successful than their successful album. Dave Mustaine right. got kicked out of Metallica and has never been able to surpass Metallica on any individual... Uh, well, maybe, maybe on an individual album, I'd have to look, but my guess is no, and certainly right. not in total album sales. Now, overall, Ozzy has sold more albums as a solo artist than his Sabbath work has sold. So oh, he's wow. been more successful as a solo artist than he has been with Sabbath. He sold over 100 million albums worldwide, but he sold over 55 million solo albums. So he's a little bit ahead right. in terms of a solo artist. So for... Uh- no, go ahead. I think in terms of, I was just going to say, I think in terms of Mustaine, just to not to get too far down that digression, but I think the difference, one of the big differences would be, A, he wasn't the frontman of Metallica, and B, he wasn't with them for four albums. Uh, you know, like Oz, Ozzy made four albums, each of which outsold its predecessor, you know, and got just like more and more huge and insane as a band uh, before he was booted from Black Sabbath. And I think that probably made a, a big difference. There was uh, a huge audience already of people who knew him right. as a frontman, as a singer, and loved his had loved his work for ten years before this album came out, which really wasn't the case with Mustaine. So it's not it's not quite apples to apples. Um, but yeah, there was a huge audience of people who not necessarily were hungry for an Aussie solo album but who knew that they liked Ozzy as the frontman of a heavy metal band. And the question was, could he form a new band effectively uh, and, you know, sort of have that same success? And, I mean, clearly he did. Well, and the thing is, I mean, it's such an important album, right? Because it is his album that is going to show people whether he can do this and whether he can break away or what his sound is going to be away from Black Sabbath. And the interesting thing about Ozzy is that Ozzy's not really a songwriter. Most of the Ozzy stuff that you hear throughout his entire career is stuff that's written by other people. And yep. so, you know, Ozzy's well, as made, was Sabbath. Well, right. So what is Ozzy's sound? You know what I mean? Like, what is his... That's what's fascinating to me about Ozzy is, is Ozzy Osbourne's career, especially as a solo artist, and as you just mentioned with Sabbath, is always been defined by the people that he puts around him. And so right. each era of Ozzy Osbourne... While it has some um, connections and while his voice is over the top of it, it's always been about the members of the band that he puts around himself. And well, uh, and I think, but I think you just touched on it there. I think the, the real defining aspects of Ozzy as a solo, uh, well, as an artist, full stop, are his voice, which is one of the most distinctive voices unmistakable. Yep. in music, let alone heavy Agreed. metal, you know, just in music, um, and his taste. And what I mean by that, and you know, that you can make arguments about whether or not it's his taste or his manager's taste or his wife's taste or whatever, you know, but nevertheless, what he chooses 
to yeah, he may not write the songs, but he's going to listen to them and go, yeah, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. I'll try that. What about this? Um, you know, so it's as a kind of, as the authority of, you know, he decides what songs represent him. And then there's his voice, as you say, over the top of them. And okay, he's only, scare quotes, only the singer. But, you know, as we've said, for right or wrong, the front man of a band and the only guy whose voice you hear just naturally becomes the focal point and becomes right. the band in many people's eyes. Well, and I, and I, you hit that on the head and I don't want anybody to think that, uh, I'm, that we're at all trying to minimize his role in the band because as you just mentioned, a, one of the most recognizable voices in music, not even just heavy metal in music period. B, uh, in terms of melodies, Ozzy in my mind is a great singer. And when you listen to his stuff, those songs would not even sound the same without the way that he's delivering the lyrics over the top of them. Because for a lot of Ozzy songs, the riffs are, they're basic. Now, and, yep. and, and I don't want to say that as being minimized either, but they're not, the riffs themselves are not overly complex, but his melodies, over if you just listen to the, to the music and you took the vocals out, and you had anybody else come in and sing, it's a completely different song. He is delivering vocals that are not following along with the main riff of the song. You know, and similarly to like a Ronnie James Dio, where if you took that element out, it's not even the same song anymore. And so he he absolutely, through how he delivers those vocals and through his unique voice, uh, brings those songs to life in a different way. So, I, but my you know my comment about him not being a huge song, songwriter is just more about like the music itself was written in the early days by Bob Daisley and whoever else was, you know, the, the sort of lead guitar player at the time. But, um, but yeah, so his sound changed a lot whenever yeah. he would get. Well, and Daisley wrote most of the lyrics as well, which is that's two bands where the bassist has been the main lyricist for Ozzy. <laughs> boy, I'll tell you, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about Randy Rhodes, but Bob freaking Daisley. If really you want good a bass as well, yeah. clinic, this good Lord, I mean, and it's easy to overlook because Ozzy has always had amazing guitar players, amazing guitar players, but he's also had Rob Trujillo in the band, who is currently with Metallica yep. in Suicidal Tendency, pretty good bass player. Bob Daisley, maybe one of the most underrated bass players ever. I mean, the bass lines on this album are insane. So, yeah, but it's it's just, it's it's so interesting to look at each era of Ozzy and see, like, who was writing the songs and who, although that's not always easy to ascertain, because when you look at the liner notes, Ozzy gets a yeah, lot of credit yeah. on those songs. Uh, well, and yeah, there's a lot of stories oh, about, you know, people being denied credit or given credit they didn't deserve and yep. politics involved. And, you know, even to the point where they re-released this album with uh, Trujillo and whoever was Ozzy's drummer at the time it's re-recording the, dude the rhythm from section faith tracks. no more i think mike borden oh was it borden right, yeah, right it was mike borden and and they did that with diary of a madman as well and then subsequently re-released them with the original tracks and so yeah the i one, mean whoever's idea that was that was just like i think we might have a guess of whose idea that was <laughs> uh <laughs> that's just that's such a shitty thing to what do, a man. shitty thing <laughs> to do and uh and as great as those musicians are they cannot hold a candle to the sound that these guys captured on on these albums. Well, and it's and, just completely different. You know, look at the differences in drumming techniques. Oh, my God. 
between just 1980 and 1990 when Borden was, you know, sort of in his prime. Can you, you know, even in those 10 years, well, and just Curse Lake's like drumming. history with Uriah Heep and stuff like that. Like his style yeah. is just absolutely, even if they came from the same era, their styles would have been so completely different. And right, obviously, well, the, the, the styles, and then there's the fact that things like, you know, sort of, um, uh, Lombardi's drum techniques and stuff, you know, and Paul Bostaff and, you know, those sort of innovators yep. that came through in the mid to late eighties weren't even, you know, around when this Gene album Hoagland, was recorded. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, and then by 90, well, maybe not Hoagland, but certainly by 1990, you know, people like Borden had learned their trade in a, just in a different era. And so of course, and same with Rob Trujillo, of course, it's going to sound completely different. Of course, they're great. They're great musicians. But the idea that you could take everything except the rhythm tracks, the rhythm tracks of all things, and then re-record those, and it would somehow sound better? No. I no. guess it's going to sound very different, and the sound quality might be better. But oh, just such a, and, and my just outrage a is bad like, idea from word one. How dare you do that to Randy well, Rhodes' two albums. Yeah. How dare you? go back and change one note of what this group of people created when that kid was alive. Like that, it makes me furious that they did that. Now, thankfully they released in 2011, uh, a remaster of the album with the old tracks reinserted and some bonuses. And that's, that's the one that I've been listening to the most. And I've listened to the original album many, many times, but I've, that's the one I've been listening to the most for this particular, uh, review here. And, Man, I like I have so much love for this album, but uh but yeah, just going back to the album itself, it so it was four times platinum in the US and it sold six million overall, I believe. So certainly very successful for Ozzy. Um and again, one of two albums that he did with Randy Rhodes. We can certainly talk about the passing of Randy Rhodes because it was horrific and tragic, but the thing I wanted to mention about Randy Rhodes is sort of how he came to Ozzy. So at the time, Randy Rhodes was uh, was a founding member of Quiet Riot, <clears throat> and he had founded Quiet Riot in I forget what year it was. It might have been seventy. I forget exactly what year it was, but he founded Quiet Riot and then ended up coming over to Ozzy's band. And when they recorded this album, he was twenty three years old. And he died when he was around 25. Yeah. So when you think in the back of your mind, the fact that this kid was 23 years old at the time this album was made, to me, that is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, well, it's a bit like that Dio album, isn't it? Oh, with with uh, Vivian Campbell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was uh, 16 when he formed the band Little Women with uh, Kelly Garney. And then that went on to become Quiet Riot. To become Quiet Riot, yeah. yeah. And uh, they had released two albums in Japan, but it wasn't until after he was gone that they released the first album, Metal Health, in the United States. But in 1979, Ozzy was, you know, obviously out of Black Sabbath, and it was an acquaintance of Ozzy Osbourne's future Slaughter bassist, Dana Strum. So the guy who played with Mark Slaughter, and still does, I believe, to this day, and also is the in the backing van band for Vince Neil, I believe um, he contacted Randy Rhodes. He kind of tried to hook them up to have Rhodes inter- to, to have Rhodes audition for him. And at the time it seems like Randy was kind of getting a little bit 
the quiet riot thing wasn't happening in the way that he wanted to have it happen. Now, by that time, he had been, uh, I think his mother had a music school, so he had grown up on classical. So Randy Rhodes had grown up sort of studying classical. He was teaching guitar and that kind of stuff. And so he's obviously, you can hear on this album, super classically influenced. But there is a story that he told about going to that audition. And he said that, uh, oh, it was Ozzy who was talking about it. Ozzy said of the audition, um, because apparently Randy went to his hotel room in Los Angeles with his Les Paul guitar and an amp and just started warming up. And Ozzy said, uh, who was very drunk at the time, he said he played this fucking solo. And I'm like, am I fucking stoned or am I hallucinating or what the fuck is this? And Ozzy immediately gave him the job. And so basically Randy got the <laughs> Without job. even a proper yep. audition. Yeah, Ozzy wow. said, you've got the gig. And Randy said, I had, <laughs> Randy said, I had the weirdest feeling because I thought you didn't even hear me yet, but that's how he got the job. So that's how he ended <laughs> up getting the job. Uh, I believe that Lee Kerslake came into the band uh, later in the process because they were auditioning a bunch of drummers. So a lot of the songs on this album were basically created by uh, Daisley and Rhodes sitting down and basically crafting the songs together. And then when they had yeah, them... I- I read on, uh, I think it was on the Wikipedia entry, that, that there's only one track on this album that has Kerslake credited, and that was uh, actually recorded after the rest of the album had been recorded, just so that Kerslake could get a credit on it. Right. And so it, that's interesting to think about, too, as you listen to these songs, that you have Randy and Bob Daisley, who are the two people that are creating this stuff. And then Ozzy would would get it, and he would start to sing his melodies over it, and they'd finalize the lyrics and stuff like that. But this is really a 23-year-old kid sitting down with an amazing bass player and the two of them crafting each one of these songs. And that, to me, is in sort of an image in my mind that I kept it kept going through my head as I was listening to this stuff. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then he only got to make two albums with Ozzy. And that's... Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, mean, like, it's like Cliff Burton, isn't it? It's like, Jesus, what a waste. It is, and I'll tell you, man, I, I've had this album for a very long time, but when we, when I started to get ready for this episode, and I've been listening to it nonstop over the past month, the first couple times I listened to it, I it, it moved me to tears, because to me, like, every note that this kid played was a gift, and some songs are better than others and some riffs are better than others but man when you the just the fusion of raw energy of this 23 year old kid and his classical background together it to me when i listen to these songs like each song almost sounds different every time i listen to it because i notice these little flares and these little um tweaks and these little fills and just like all of these little things that he does to make different parts of the same riff or different you know parts of the song just pop like it's just there's just an energy to him that i think is captured so well on the two records that he did and i think the remaster and i'm not a big fan of remasters i think this 2011 remaster is fantastic um in terms of capturing what they did in 1980. Um, you can argue, and I'm sure we will, about the actual like guitar tone and stuff like that. But I think in terms of capturing what these guys did, the, this remaster does a really good job of it. Like you can feel it. Right. All right. Well, uh, let's get into the album itself then. 
So we have an album of nine tracks, 40 minutes, uh, which yep. again, you know, as we've said before, some uh, younger listeners might go, really, is that all? But, uh, you know, in 1980, that was perfectly... That's all it needs to be. Right, normal and standard. Uh, it also, uh, it should be pointed out that one of those tracks is a 50-second instrumental. <laughs> so that's it's really only eight tracks. Which I think, uh, and we've discussed it on different albums before, is the whole, like, the album has to be 40 minutes, so let's put in something that puts it over the 40-minute mark so we don't have to write right, a Right, because that's what we're contractually song. obliged Correct. to do, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you put it on, and we'll start, just get straight into track one, I Don't Know. I mean, what a freaking first song on an album. First of all, the so the sound that you hear when the song starts is the sound of a gong being played backwards. That's the oh, sort of uh, yeah, that's the sort of tubular like coming out of hyperspace uh, sort of uh, intro that you get there, and then you get to me. I mean, pick slides speak to me, but you get one that basically says. Buckle in, because this song is going to be kick-ass. Uh, just an awesome, awesome riff, I think, and a riff that announces this as not Black Sabbath, which I think was really important to establish on this first song. You know what I mean? Because there are songs, I think, on this album that hearken to Black Sabbath. I don't feel like this is one of them. I feel like this is a much more up-tempo uh hard rock slash heavy metal song that really establishes a different take than what people might have expected from black sabbath's ozzy osbourne i think that's absolutely true um yeah i mean i should say by the way incidentally uh, the last episode you got you got a fair bit of stick it's fair to say from people uh for not being a huge sabbath fan and not being a massive fan of you know quite a few parts of that album um, and I just wanted to say, don't worry, this episode, it's my turn to take all the heat, uh, yep. because <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I really am not into a lot of this album at all. Um, you're right that the first track, it achieves that, uh, it absolutely does not sound anything like Sabbath. Uh, it is energetic. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a good showcase for Rhodes's sort of riffing, riff playing at any rate. Um, and yeah, you know, it does announce this is not. This is not Black Sabbath. This is not going to sound like Black Sabbath. Uh, but <laughs> the guitar tone, for one thing, I just, 
the guitar tone throughout this album, I know it's a 1980, so I can forgive it to an extent, but it drives me up the wall uh, because it is so thin and anemic. And I just, oh dear. I mean, thank goodness that Bob Daisley's bass is quite high in the mix because I think that kind of saves the overall sound of the album because the, the guitar tone itself is, I don't think it does Rhodes any favours, to be honest. I think actually he would sound, would have sounded better with a a thicker guitar tone. But again, uh, you know, maybe that was deliberate so that he didn't sound like he was trying to sound like Iomi. Uh, you know, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it certainly doesn't sound like Iomi. Um, and yeah, it is just, as I say, it, it drives me up the wall through the whole album. So I won't mention it again but I, I needed to get that off my chest. <laughs> I um, completely appreciate that. I will also say that as much as you dislike it is as much as I love as it. As you love it, yeah. I, I adore it. I adore his <laughs> guitar tone. Um, and that's weird, too, because I adore, like, George Lynch's guitar tone. Like, I, I like, I love guitar players that have, like, a completely distinct guitar tone. And I agree with you. It is thin. And I, I hope and I wonder if that is by design, because again, B- Bob Daisley's bass on this album, as you said, very high up in the mix, which I love, but also what he's doing on bass is so much more than most rock bassists are doing in your average rock song. Yeah. That I feel like there is a lead guitar and a lead bass player on this like he's playing he's not playing rhythm bass he's playing lead bass like he's he's basically doing uh the guy who is <laughs> the guy who's holding it together is Lee Kerslake he is oh, it, totally, who yeah. who, yeah, yeah. who has some flourishes here and there but he is doing the thankless job of anchoring every song because uh, keep time keep yes, rhythm yeah yeah because Daisley is i don't i mean he's not as free as Rhodes is on guitar but he is not at all beholden to a basic rhythm bass right. line. He's pretty on, free, on his, yeah. yeah, maybe on one or two songs, he kind of dials it back and does something. And I think purposefully on a couple of songs. But he, I mean, just the fact that uh, off of that first riff about, at about 24 seconds where he comes in, the first high note that he hits on the bass is like, man, the bass is right in your face in this album. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. but then that sets the tone for, you know, bump, 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 but da da da, bump, bump. Like he's he's his baseline is just so much more robust than you could imagine a standard rock baseline to the song. Because you could certainly throw in a standard rock baseline to oh, the song, yeah, yeah. and it would sound fine, and it would sound like you know you've got this insane guitar player that's playing over the standard baseline. But I think what Daisley's doing is is almost matching Randy in some ways throughout this album, and I think that allows them to sort of play off one another. And and that may be hopefully why that tone is a little bit thinner because the bass provides the thickness, you know, and, and also right. I think his tone is more in line with the way Ozzy sings because Ozzy, Ozzy's voice to me is that, you know what I mean? So it to me, his guitar tone almost matches Ozzy's voice in my head. In a, yeah. Okay. I can, I can see that. I mean, I couldn't help because I, I actually, this is one of the tracks I hadn't heard before. Uh, and I couldn't help comparing it to Stand Up and Shout off of Dio's, you know, oh, okay, a, yep. another debut album with a young Wunderkind guitarist, sure. uh, you know, that sort of like, you know, starts out pretty fast straight out of the gate. But I think the difference in them is quite 
illuminating because this is this is real hard rock. This isn't thrashy. It's Correct. you know, it's it's hard rock rather than sort of out and out metal. Whereas stand up and shout, you know, very hard to call that anything other than that is just straight up metal. Um, right. There's- and it, I don't, it didn't, I think the problem, part of the problem with this track for me was that it clearly felt like they were trying to have a fast, energetic yes. song out of the gate. And it didn't feel like it had that much energy to me. And maybe that's Ozzy's vocal. I don't know. Cause his vocal is actually quite sort of slow in places. So maybe yeah. that's down to the vocals more than the music. I don't know. But as a whole, it didn't feel like it had as much energy, ironically, as the next track. What's interesting to me about this album, one of the many things that's interesting to me about this album, is that there's a tug of, maybe not a tug of war, maybe that's the wrong um, picture to paint of it, but there's this duality to this album. There are songs that are very dark uh, and lean more towards the Sabbathy stuff, and then there are songs that are uh, complete radio rock, which we'll talk about in a few, and then there's songs that are kind of in the middle, which is where I feel like this song is. Um I love it as an opening tune, and it was one of the songs that I knew most from Ozzy because this song and Crazy Train um, are two uh, singles that got a lot of heavy play when the Tribute album came out for Randy right, Rhodes. And so right. uh, this was definitely a song that I had a ton of familiarity. I would say overall, uh, this song uh, and Crazy Train are the two that get the most play in terms of singles you know, from this album. Uh and I love it. I mean, just the the sort of slowing things down at the 225 mark where uh, you get a little bit more of Randy's sort of classical side and then it ramps back up and just uh, ear-splitting, shredding solo. But not shredding like, I don't know, you probably, you may feel differently, but I the term noodling is often thrown around, <laughs> you know, when we're talking, like when we talk about Megadeth and stuff like that, when we talk... I feel like there's something different about Randy Rhodes. Like even from a Dave Mustaine, even from, you know, some of the bands that I would consider to be my favorite bands of all time. To me, there's just something different about Randy Rhodes. And it seems like it is this combination of so well-grounded in theory, but also improvised at the same time that just, it, there's just an energy to it to me that well, makes and I think his solos being, sing. I think it's being grounded in that theory and that classical training that allows you to oh. then, you know, improvise around it, as he clearly does. I mean, you mentioned the 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 sort of slower, more classically influenced bit uh, in the the middle, the middle eight. Uh, my, uh, I like I like the bit leading into that <laughs> because yep. it's got it's got a nice descending chord pattern, which is quite nice. But the the bit itself, I mean, in my notes, it just says soft ballady tosh. I, I wasn't mm. into that at all. The solo, I actually didn't mind. Uh, the solo was was fine. It didn't blow me away, but it was fine. Um, one of the things that struck me listening to this, however, more so, and this is like uh, on the whole album, but you know, right from the first line of this, uh, and more so than listening to Sabbath, which is the strange thing, is I think on this album, you can really hear the influence that Ozzy had on Pete Steele from Typo Negative, on oh. his vocals. You listen to it when Pete's not sort of like, you know, shouting or screaming. When he's actually singing, he actually sounds quite like Ozzy on this album. Not like Ozzy with Sabbath, but like Ozzy specifically on this album. So 
Yeah, I kind of, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's coincidence, but given that I know Pete Steele was a big Black Sabbath fan, I'm guessing probably not. And maybe this was one of the albums that he grew up, you know, sort of learning to play and sing along with. Um, yeah, it was just kind of a weird, I was about halfway through this track and I thought, oh my God, it sounds like Pete Steele. <laughs> yeah, and, and just in terms of like the meaning of this song and uh, just a little background on sort of where Ozzy was at at the time. So obviously this, as we talked about, is the album where he's struggling with the fact that he has been kicked out of Black Sabbath. So what Bob Daisley was saying uh, about Ozzy at the time, there was a great interview with Bob Daisley over on a site called Song Facts, and they had little snippets about different songs and stuff, but he was saying... Ozzy was fairly easy to work with. He was a bit down at first because he'd just been fired from Black Sabbath and he was depressed and he was unsure of himself. It really damaged his confidence being fired from Black Sabbath, but Randy and I used to encourage him and try to bring him up out of the doldrums. Writing with Ozzy was fairly easy because we had a little songwriting machine going. Randy and I would work on music together, just sitting on chairs opposite one another, and then we'd put parts together and we'd knock it off and Ozzy would sing a melody over it. His melodies were always good. Ozzy's good for melodies. Uh, Usually the music came first. Ozzy would sing a melody, and then I would take a tape away into my room and write lyrics by myself to Ozzy's phrasing and melodies that would fit with what he was comfortable with. He wasn't a lyricist, and neither was Randy, so I had to wear the lyricist hat, but I enjoyed it. I like writing the lyrics. That's how we wrote together for this album, Um, which I thought is interesting, but especially the part about Ozzy's confidence being shaken, you know, coming out of Sabbath. And so... There are a couple of songs on this album where uh, the lyrics that Ozzy contributed are very down, and Daisley tried to write lyrics that brought things back up, and we'll talk about one of those songs in a few minutes. But this particular song is about the confusion and sort of uh, what Ozzy was going through after getting kicked out of Black Sabbath. And, you know, what's the future of mankind? How do I know I got left behind? It's kind of like the questions that he got about what's the future of Ozzy Osbourne? What's the future of Black Sabbath? How do I know? I'm the one who got kicked out of the band, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So just well, dealing with the everyone goes through changes. Yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, how can you, how can you hear that and not think, oh, yes. <laughs> yep. Don't look at me for answers. Don't ask me. I don't know. So just that, that whole uncertainty of that time, I think. Uh, so from a conceptual standpoint, too, I think that's an interesting opening track, right? Because he's saying right off the bat, like, this is what I've been dealing with. I've right. been dealing with all of these questions about, what happens next? And I don't know. So I, I just think that's that's kind of cool. So that's your opener. Um, and then we move on to arguably one of the most famous songs from Ozzy's solo career, and that is Crazy Train. I would I would argue that this after I mean I think would you agree say Bark at the Moon is probably 
his most famous solo track or are you thinking of I another? I would probably argue that. Uh, no, I would probably agree with you on that because Bark at the Moon may be my favorite Ozzy song. So I'm very biased towards <laughs> Bark at the Moon. Well, but um, I feel like Bark at the Moon is also the one that got like so much airplay on MTV and just the opening riff of Bark at the Moon rotation. is one of the greatest riffs of all time. So it, 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 but anyway, the reason I mentioned yeah. that is I feel like that and Crazy Train, those two tracks basically sure. are, are the best, in the same way that Iron Man and Paranoid are Black yeah. Sabbath's best-known tracks, you know? I, I think you could absolutely make a case for that, and uh, I'm sure some people will argue with that, but you, those are two very, very good candidates for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I had heard this track before. I was familiar with it. Of course, it's it's almost impossible <laughs> to be a metal fan and not have heard Crazy Train at some point. Um, and if I Don't Know was a left jab, then this is the right hook that just knocks you on your ass. Well, it's a right hook of... How can I put it? I mean, populism, which isn't really the right way, but that's the best I can think way I can think of to sum it up at the moment. It's like like musically, I prefer this to the first track. I think musically, this is a stronger track. Um, lyrically, I'm not so keen on it. And part of that is also tied into the way it's presented, like with the intro and stuff, which is that this song to me, I, I always felt, and it was one of the thing, one of the reasons that I didn't get into Ozzy as a solo artist and preferred his work with Sabbath. And I should say, it's not just Ozzy. I've never got into any of Tony Iommi's solo stuff. Geezer's stuff with GZR, I like, but it's not essential stuff. You know, it's good stuff, but it's not essential listening by any means. Um, you know, I always felt that all four of them were very much kind of more than the sum of their parts. You know, they, they were really special when they were together. And then when they weren't, it just wasn't so special um and part of that was that i always felt this track being that this was one of his most popular you know and most listened to tracks really kind of plays up ozzy's clown persona like he and he's always been that you know you you watch black yes. sabbath on you watch videos of black sabbath on stage and it's hilarious yep. because the other three guys are all kind of like shoegazing do me dark playing that you know very serious playing their music and there's ozzy running around the stage clapping his hands grinning like a yep. lunatic you know he it's <laughs> but i think it's it who works. he's always been yeah right right but i think it works as a contrast to that like when he's got the other people reining him in a bit and he stands in contrast to the band i think it can work um but let loose what you get is then all the excesses of that showman clown persona uh, and the 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 madman image that he cultivated for his solo career um let loose and i think it goes too far and i i don't know it just it didn't it never got me the same way that he did when he was with sabbath it's a bit like phil collins and genesis <laughs> like yeah collins's solo stuff you can see where that fits into when he was with genesis but with genesis he had the other members to rein him in and sort of like pull back those excesses. When he was solo, it was like, no, 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 here we go. Like all cheesy pop music all the time. Um, and that's kind of how I feel like Ozzy in general with his solo career has been. And I think this track kind of exemplifies that. So like I say, musically, I really like it. And and his melody is good as well. It's, it's a good singing performance. Uh, but the lyrics, not so much. And I, I just don't like the sort of character that it gives off. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, those excesses and uh, I think Randy 
Rhodes and Bob Daisley elevate this music from other bands that might sound something similar to this. And I do feel like you're right in that Ozzy's sort of clownier side and his uh, goofier side, not so much to me in this song, but in other songs on this album sort of comes out. And I, I do like that. I, I like that, that um, part of him lyrically, I think you're right. It, it, it to me, the problem with the lyrics in the song is it hits to a few different fields, you know, on the one hand, it's very personal. On the other hand, it's talking about, the state of the world. How and crazy it, and, the and, world is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and that's a theme that he hits on a lot is like, what are we doing to the world? What are we doing to each other? He, he sort of throws that in. But to me, that's also a product of the fact that he's contributing a few lines here or there that Daisley is trying to build around or, uh, you know, fill in the gaps to and stuff like that. So in some places I do feel like from a lyrical standpoint, you see the fact that there were two people, um, you know, contributing to some of these songs and that the lyrics don't always match up in a, conceptual way the way that i would like them to um what's most interesting to me about the song is that to me the lyrics are much darker than the tone of the song the tone of the song is a very upbeat um overall i think during the verses and stuff like that a very upbeat sort of um almost catchy tune and the lyrics are much more depressing than that and so right, it's, musically it's, it you this, can see it as a van halen track almost absolutely sure uh and however i feel like the main riff is leans much more towards the darker black sabbath stuff like that that opening riff when he comes in in the very beginning of the song to me is very evil sounding and very dark sounding um and then when it kicks into the main riff dun, 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 that's much more upbeat and that's much more light i think but that initial riff to me sounds very doomy um and one of the darker riffs on the album um and again when he does it after the solo it sounds very yeah kind of darker stuff so so i think the interesting thing and it's called crazy train so it you know the, but there's a duality to this song that doesn't always match up and maybe that's by design maybe yeah i do one thing i do like in it uh, of Rhodes' playing is the um whammy bar dive when oh. uh, when ozzy sings screaming yeah when he sings mental wounds still screaming and, it, and the guitar goes it's like it, it that's cheesy now but in you know in 1980 that probably wasn't quite so cheesy and it just fits so well and it's not like massively high in the mix so i do kind of like that it makes me it makes me laugh but in a good way <laughs> and the thing and i you know people may disagree with me on this but the thing i love about randy rhodes is that he he will play just this kind of basic catchy over the verses that anybody could play. You know what I mean? Like it it's it's a basic to go back to what we talked about before. It's kind of a basic, you know, uh line that he's playing during the the regular verses and stuff like that. And then he starts playing a solo and you're like, "Good god." Right. <laughs> because it's just amazing. And and what I like about Randy's solo as opposed to a guy like a Steve Vai who is wouldn't play something so simple. Right. You know what even I mean? like even he, his riffs it's are beneath just crazy. Him. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Whereas like Randy would have a good time playing. And in some places you can hear him play just a little bit differently, you know, on different verses or just add a little flourish here or there. Um, and I'm not talking about fills and I'm not talking about solos, but he, he would, he would do that. And then when it came time for him to go, he went. And I love that about him. And what I love about his solos is they, soar to such heights and then also can 
go to such depths. Like they're, they're, his solos to me feel like such a true expression of his 23 year old just love of guitar. You know what I mean? Like that to, to, there's such an energy to his solos that I, I love them in a way that uh, other bands, like, like we've talked about before, it feels like noodling or they're putting a solo in here because this is where you put the solo in the song or stuff like that. Like he, to me, it's like he, when it was time to flip that switch, like he just went and, and he matched the emotional tone of the song, which I don't think solos always do a good job of doing that. Um, because again, they, that might be the place where we insert a solo here. And so the guitar player goes and writes a solo and it may or may not really fit the song. I feel like he does a really good job of matching the emotional tone of the song and then brings you back into, you know, the main riff or the, or the song or something like that. So, uh, you know, this is a toss up for me because between, I don't know, and crazy train, I think I like the solo in crazy train better. Um, but I might like the main riff and I don't know better. It, it, to me, it's just a, such a great one-two punch to open the album. Like I really, I feel like he's made the case that this is not, that I, I'm still capable of the Black Sabbath stuff, but this is not that album at all. This is not Black Sabbath. Right, right. And it's not going to be Sabbath And going it's not forward. going to be, correct. And nowhere is that more ably illustrated <laughs> than in track three. <laughs> I feel like you might hurt my feelings on this song, so I just have to say... Track three, Goodbye to Romance. I just have to say this to me is one of the greatest songs of all time. <sighs> I know, I know you're going to hurt my feelings in a minute, but I will tell you that I think it is one of, I just think it's beautiful. And this is the song that makes me cry for Randy Rhodes because the kid was 23. And from a lyrical standpoint, the song. This is one of those songs where uh, Daisley and Ozzy both contributed lyrics to it, and so uh, the song is obviously about his split from Black Sabbath. Yes, and Daisley wrote most of the lyrics for the song. Ozzy came up with the title for it and some of the lines, and then Daisley filled in the rest of the words. And so, what Daisley said about this, he said Ozzy was fairly. Uh, oh, this is where he talked about how their writing style, but specifically about the song. What I remember reading about is that Ozzy was contributing the lyrics, uh, the depressing lyrics about how sad it was, the, the breakup with Black Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And so some of the 
more upbeat lines in the song were what Daisley added to try and give it a sense of hope and give it a sense of looking forward. And so that's why this song sort of has this, um, you know, being sad about the past, but looking forward to the future sort of thing, because they, they were, they were, this is literally the conversation that they were having with Ozzy. This is, this is where Ozzy was when this group came together and they were making this album. He was in this place. And so I think this song to me captures like the turning point that he was at, at that particular point in time. But that's just from a lyrical standpoint, like from a musical standpoint, um, I just adore Rhodes is playing on this one. And the solo is probably my favorite solo from him ever. Um, Because I just think it's so emotional and so uh, powerful, but that's, I have like an un, natural love for this song like it because it just captured to me it's also a song that uh is a tribute to randy Rhodes. you know even though it was never meant to be that it just makes me uh sad that we lost him it's no planet caravan is it no no and for me that's a great thing (laughs) i know i mean lyrically i agree with you i think lyrically this is one of the strongest songs on the album uh you know these are great lyrics and the aussie's vocal melody is pretty good as well but overall musically i mean this this belongs on a 1987 def leppard album it's this is not what i want from uh from aussie and and you know we've said before i have nothing against a ballad uh, in principle, but I, yeah, this is not a good ballad for me. Um, yeah, it's just doesn't absolutely nothing for me. I can appreciate that it's well performed, and like I say, I do like the lyrics, but it's musically, it is not a song that I enjoy listening to or want to spend any further time listening to. Well, the good news is I have a listened to it enough you, for the both of us. You've done it for me, yeah. And B, we'll continue to listen to it enough for the both of us for the rest of the time. Probably for everybody that's listening to this episode, trust me, I've got you on this one. Because this song comes up twice on this album, and uh, but I, I will never, ever skip over it. Um, I will say, if you're not listening to the remaster of this album, that one of the bonus tracks on this 2011 remaster is a version of this song where it is literally just the guitars and Ozzy. And there is no bass and there is no drums. And to me, that I, it's it's amazing. Like that that just reinforces for me. Like what I, what's cool about this as well is that the bass and the drums are very understated on this song, they which are, is yeah. completely opposite to almost every other song on the album. Where Daisley is almost one for one with Randy, right. matching him. But with it is these, appropriate for this song. It is as totally well. appropriate. Yes, and so I. But I, I love that as an ebb and flow of the album, where like yeah, we know where to dial it back and we know where to kick it back up. I also love that this is an, this is a song where you could have done an acoustic solo and it would have fit just fine in here. But the fact that he not only plays an electric solo, but plays a soaring electric solo is, uh, and one that's much more slow. It's not a shredding solo at all. It's a very, no, it's a very emotional, thoughtful solo, yeah. and emotional solo. And I, I just love that solo. This is one of my, uh, all-time favorite solos and probably my favorite Randy Rhodes solo um, while being nowhere near his shreddiest at all. Uh, I just absolutely love it. So yeah. So I, I won't beat that to death. I will just say this is a song that has a very special place for me. Now what's interesting when you get to track four, which is called D. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it instrumental? I was going to say, talking about acoustic, you know, lengthy acoustic passages. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I think that for me, because we only have two albums from Randy Rhodes, and I mentioned before, like my in my mind, every note from him is a gift. Like I love these little showcases of his classical ability. My only complaint about this song, and it's only 50 seconds long, so if you don't like it, I mean, it's over before you even know it. Uh, my only complaint about this is I feel like this should be song three, and Goodbye to Romance should be song four. Should follow because, after it, yeah. yeah. Because at about 35 seconds, you can hear the core of the main line for Goodbye to Romance. You can. It's almost as if he was warming up or practicing or trying to figure out what the through line of this song was, and then he found it, and then they could have played Goodbye to Romance after that, and I think it would have flowed perfectly. So it's interesting that this is sort of a, like an epilogue to the song, when in reality, I think it would have been a better lead-in. That's my it, only complaint about that. It was a really weird choice. Like the first few times that I listened to this album, when I wasn't, I was just putting it on, you know, sort of to listen rather than sort of, you know, really listen hard, really focus on it. Uh, I didn't even realize this was a separate track. I, I kept right. lose, I kept losing track of, well, where's track four? Because I knew that there was a track between Goodbye to Romance and Suicide Solution. And I was like, well, where is it? Well, it's like, what? Because I just assumed it was part of the same track. Right. Um, it, yeah, it's such a strange choice. And, I mean, it's almost impossible to even discuss this musically because it's just an acoustic instrumental passage in a sort of classical style. It's very, he's very talented. It's very well played. Uh, but there's almost nothing to it. It almost feels like an interstitial from a 1974 Genesis concept album. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's like, there's I, I, almost I, I nothing to it. I do think of it. it. I do think of it as him like um, playing around with finding the line for goodbye to romance. Like that's and, what I say. It's all, it's all to me. It's almost like a practice outtake where yeah. it's like, Oh, somebody was recording while he was, you know, fooling around on his guitar. And then he hit on that. And then that became what we now know as goodbye to romance. Yeah. Uh, well, and you may well be right, honestly, because yeah, I, I, as I say, there's almost nothing to it. It's such a strange thing to have as an instrumental and yes to put it as an epilogue very weird um but maybe that's because they didn't want to go straight from goodbye to romance into track five which is suicide solution I mean, 
to me feels very deep purple with the keyboards and stuff like that. Like just like you get another big pick slide here uh, in the bass line. Good Lord. The first bass lick that you hear from Bob, Bob Daisley and then the way that he has this sort of stop start bass line during the bridge and stuff like that is just like th- this song to me, the bass just jumps off the, off the recording. It, 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 it is nuts. Yeah. Th- this is one of the other songs, obviously off this album that I had heard before um, because you know, it is a very famous Aussie song also notorious because of that whole, you know, lawsuit thing with the teenager who tragically killed himself. Yes. Uh, while this, allegedly this song was on the, or was it this song specifically, or was it just the album was on his turntable? So the kid, this kid, uh, John McCollum, a depressed teenager who shot himself in the head, allegedly after listening to this song and the boy's parents sued Osborne and CBS records for encouraging self-destructive behavior. And I remember during this trial, them uh, not only picking out lines like wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker, uh, but trying to ascertain what the different sound effects were because they were making the case that um, the part where you're, you're basically, I think you're hearing um, Ozzy say the beginning of the word suicide. So it's suit, suit, suit. Uh, they were making the case that it was saying, shoot, shoot, shoot. Right. And that was encouraging the, about, the kid. Wasn't the talk about backmasking as well? Uh, yes. This was one of those where they thought that somebody was saying, do it, and yeah. then recorded backwards or some rubbish it, like that. And when uh, Tipper Gore and the PMRC became big, as we've talked about with the Twisted Sister album and stuff like that, this was an album that was very heavily referred to as well, you know, in terms of the the sort of uh, negative impact that this music could have on people. So, yeah, it's. Um, and, and what I. So, yeah, so that was a tragedy that, that was almost blamed on the music. But then there's also an interesting story here about the whole Bon Scott thing, because when, when Ozzy talks about this song he talks about it as being written for bon scott who of course died um aspirating on his own vomit from you know his drinking issues back in the day former lead singer of acdc um but bob daisley has said that he wrote this song about ozzy he wrote the song about ozzy's substance abuse and ozzy's drinking all right um, which makes a heck of a lot of sense because yep. apparently, uh, not only, I mean, Ozzy was drinking long before he left Black Sabbath. In fact, the, that contributed to his not being in Black Sabbath anymore. But, uh, he, at the time that he was kicked out of Black Sabbath and the time that they were starting to form a band to record this album, he was really in a bad spiral. And so this was a song where Daisley has said that he wrote about what Ozzy was doing to himself. Right. Well, so it's I mean, kind of interesting. Famously, I don't think there's a single member of Black Sabbath who didn't have a drink problem at at some point, you know, and uh, they've all gone on record quite happily, you know, saying like, you know, they should all be dead several times over by rights. And it's a miracle that they're all still alive. Um, You know, part of the reason that Bill Ward doesn't play anymore is because he just can't, Uh, you know, he destroyed his ability to play through drinking. And he, he, you know, he will, I won't say happily acknowledge that, but, you know, he will freely acknowledge that sure um you know i think he's even been through the american program i think he's like a born again uh you know 12-step program follower and everything now uh and has been for for some years so yeah i mean that was a an issue that was rife throughout black sabbath so i i didn't know uh that ozzy had you know claimed that this was written about bon scott i just always assumed that it was about ozzy i mean because how could you not 
Right. <laughs> you know, it's you've only got to listen to them. And yeah, as you say, it's just you're like, well, this is clearly about Aussie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know when I first heard this and, you know, for years that Aussie didn't write the lyrics. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know that Daisley had written most of the lyrics for this. Um, yeah, I think it might be... Did Ozzy do the line, uh, wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker? He That might be Ozzy's line. I think he claims to yeah. have, yeah. And that, yeah. that might be his line with it. And it, there's some good interviews out there with Bob Daisley about like what he contributed. And, and uh, on his website, you can see a lot of stuff that he... He also has, just as a side note, uh, apparently a ton of recordings of Randy Rhodes that he tried to sell back to Sharon at some point, And she offered him so little money that he didn't do it. So apparently there's all of these... Uh, clips out there of Randy Rhodes that have never been put out. And you can see a few of them on his website. You can listen to a, a oh, few wow. of, like outtakes and stuff like that. But apparently he has a lot of stuff of Randy Rhodes. Right. But I, I do like this track. I mean, you know, I do su- too. surprising nobody. This is uh, my favorite track on side one of the album for sure. You know, personally I would have started the album with this, <laughs> but that probably would have been even more controversial. Um, you, could, you know what? You could have started the album with this because it comes in big. It does. Like it yeah. would be an okay opening song for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. You know, it's a heavy track. It rocks. Uh, and the keyboards, you know, man. The keyboards are really prevalent in the song. I feel yes. like. And they, and they, well, and they do kind of give it a strength, a musical yep. sort of sonic strength as well. They really beef it up. So yeah, as I, said, I you know musically and lyrically, I think this is the strongest track on what would have been side one of the vinyl album. Um, which, you know, as I say, probably isn't going to surprise anyone that this, you know, you've only got to listen to the music and go, okay, well, this is my kind of thing. Um, What's interesting, too, about this is, though, it, because I know that you hate songs that fade out. <laughs> this song fades out, but then ends. I've never heard that before. It's so it, strange, isn't it? It yeah. fades out, and then before it fades completely away, it it has an actual ending. Which yeah. I'm like, what? Because that... <laughs> It's one or the other. Like, the, they did both. Yeah, you're right. Like that's, your mind it, that just never happens. But the other thing I like about this song that's pretty cool, too, is the bass line is very sort of uh, individual note-based throughout. But then at about three minutes, it starts like a more of a pulsing beat. Like, he changes the rhythm up uh, well, I was and sort of mention, locks in around three minutes. And I was going to mention the bass line because you're right. Throughout most of the song, the bass line is a good, you know, it's a, a showcase for, for Daisley. But the coder at the end is I, I wish that that was more interesting because that's ironically that's the one time on the album that the bass just kind of plods and just doesn't really do anything particularly interesting um, and that doesn't start until three minutes into the song because before that the bass is almost fighting with the main riff like it's oh, going sure, back yeah, and forth and like during that bridge like it's it's this sort of stop start um, yeah, no, as I say, in it, the main song, it, it's great. The bass is great. And like I say, a bit of a showcase for Daisley. But then, yeah, yep. that, that coder is just like, I don't know. It's <laughs> And I'll tell you, if people if people are not, if the bass line isn't sticking out in your mind, go back and listen to the first 10 seconds of the song. Because the first bass lick that he does, he goes all the way down and comes all the way back up. Like, it's just awesome. It's it's such a lick. Like, it's so good when when to open that song. Yeah. It, it, and it is just, it is a great song. Uh, and it is, as we said, like, you know, back when it was vinyl, this would have been the end of uh, side one. So you flip it over and from Suicide Solution straight into track six, Mr. Crowley. Oh. 
Which is almost like a parody of Black Sabbath stuff, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Right, yeah. Which I, I mean, kind of love. My notes on this say, like, you know, this is proper hammer horror, and especially with the it, keyboards it, oh my again God, being yes. really Hammer prominent. horror, so perfect. Yes, that's exactly what this song is. And uh, Daisley basically said that his... Uh, his whole thing was like he wanted... he It was about trying to get inside Aleister Crowley's head. Like, that's... that Literally, that's what he was, you know... C- yeah. trying to write about is what was going on inside of this guy's head. Yeah, it's I mean th- honestly, this is cheese aside, this is actually probably my favorite track on the album. Dude, even, it's awesome. Even more so than Suicide Solution. Uh because the keyboards. I mean, it is cheesy as hell, but I really like it. It's so for a heavy track and it is quite heavy, it is really catchy. Yeah, music, Don Harry had played in Rainbow uh, who right. did, plays the keyboards here, also played on Sabbath's Never Say Die album. Yeah, um, and the, the, hasn't he said that this is basically his track and he's like really pissed that he doesn't get any kind of uh Oh, I didn't see that, but I, that wouldn't yeah. surprise me at all because every, everybody uh, got screwed at one point yeah. <laughs> around Yeah, I'm sure I remember to, seeing somewhere that he, he, he maintains that he basically yeah. wrote this track. Not the oh, lyrics, I'm sure, but, you know, I'm sure at some point it had Randy Rhodes... Randy Rhodes would not have been in this band forever. And uh, I'm sure that there would be a sad story about his not getting credited as well down the road had he still been around. So, right. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, but yeah it's, great tune. M- musically, it's great. The lyrics are, you know, again, it's cheesy, but good. Um, it's just that yeah, it is so sort of like theater, you know, fairground horror stuff. Um, but I do like the uh solo melody over the end oh my god and how about while Daisley's, Ozzy's singing you know how about daisley's bass under the second solo it's insane like he's right there with randy it, it, it just like to me this like highlighted their partnership there there's something special right they were about, in sync yes there's something special about how these two musicians created songs together and played together and you can feel that's the tightest connection of any elements of this record are the guitar and bass and how they play off of one another and how they and how daisley to me just seemed like and i don't know how old he was when this particular album came together but it seems like he was like the veteran musician who was 
working with Rhodes and creating these songs to not only showcase Rhodes, but to bring out the best in what he was doing by by matching it with his with daisley's own approach you know what i right. mean because it, it just taking him like, under his wing yes like it just feel like and on this song that second solo man again the the whole um classical foundation but just 23 year old just lightning energy to me it, you can just feel that and th- this is another one where i feel like he really captures the emotion uh at the end of this song like really really good and i love ozzy's melodies over this song too yeah daisley was uh 30 when this album was released so he would have been you know 28 29 when he was writing this stuff right so six seven years older than than randy at the time yeah um and boy this is the, the that it just it's moments like that in some of these songs that really make me feel like they had a special partnership and uh when we talk about you know the passing of them like basically everybody that I've read interviews with has nothing but amazing things to say about Randy Rhodes um, and the type of person that he was and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, that's a great tune. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. Like I say, it's, you know, cheese and everything. It's, there's something about it that really, that is the track more than any other that really sticks in my head from this album. The one that I find myself singing. Uh, and part of that is down to Ozzy's vocal melody. Like his vocal melody on that track is, really good like well that un- opening line unusual, i mean it just draws it, you right in well but everything and the the third line of each uh sorry the fourth line of each verse as well like in the, in the first verse it's the line with the thrill of it all the way he yep. sings that like the the notes and the phrasing it counterpoints against the main melody uh it's you know it's a sort of downward trajectory from the previous lines the, it's just it's great you know he's he's he really was good at melodies There's, yeah that's not not bullshit at all he was absolutely he may not have been a great lyricist but he knew how to sing those oh, lyrics i mean his his delivery shapes these songs overall because like absolutely, we talked about yeah. before some of the main riffs are not overly Right, but Ozzy makes them because yes. he isn't just singing along the same like, thing as the riff which you know some singers do uh, and to but, me, you know, like be- better singers don't. The 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 way these guys build on each other, like like Lee Kerslake is just like saying, okay, and, and there's plenty of times where he's got some good fills and and switches things up, but he he's basically saying like, I'm going to give you guys the blank canvas to paint on, and then the way that Daisley interacts with Randy's guitars, uh, especially in certain points of each song, are just wonderful, and then Ozzy's overall sound just sort of shapes that like to me it's like they're all so important to that process like they like you couldn't take any one of them out of it and have these songs sound the same at all right well like i said you know much like with sabbath really um right. and uh, i should say incidentally um because i don't think we've ever really talked about it that much uh i maintain that one of the reasons for metallica's early success is the same thing with hetfield i think hetfield's vocal melody now i don't know whether he necessarily comes up with those vocal melodies himself but whoever you know however does uh his vocal melodies on the first maybe not so much on kill them all but certainly you know ride the lightning puppets and justice are well and also the black album are superb you know regardless of what you may think of the quality of any one of those albums his vocal melodies over the music are absolutely superb and i main main long maintained that that is one of the reasons an overlooked reason, often overlooked reason, I think, for Metallica's success is that, you know, vocally, they did not sound 
like most other heavy metal bands. Right. Yep. Yeah, and I would say the same thing about Belladonna and Anthrax, right? I mean, that that just just very different than everybody else. But I agree yeah. with you about Metallica. Um, one last note about this particular song. Uh, Aleister Crowley apparently used to sign a lot of his books to people, polemically yours, Aleister Crowley, which is what inspired Daisley to write that lyric. Was, was it, it polemi- polemically sent? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh so I then, just, I actually thought that that was kind of a a slight dig at Crowley. <laughs> no, nope, apparently it, he that was something that he uh, had incorporated into a lot of the autographs that he signed. Fantastic. All right, so yeah, so track so moving on from that track 7 is No Bone Movies. Which, to me, this is the Kiss song. This is the Def Leppard song on the album. Like, this is the, this to me is such a late 70s, early 80s rock song. I would have said David Lee Roth, but yeah. yeah sure, same, same absolutely, David yeah, Lee Roth. Yeah. Um, it's a song about uh, the evils of pornographic movies. That's yeah. that's what the song is about. And Daisley got the idea after going to an adult film with Ozzy and Randy Rhodes. Uh, and Randy had called it a bone movie. And that's what, that's where this came from. All right. This was the track that was written after everything else on the album to give Kerslake a writing credit. Uh, and to be honest, I think it shows because it feels like a rushed track. Um, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. And I feel like the B side from this album is a far superior song that I would have liked to have seen. And we'll talk about that when we, when we hit that, but that I think would have, I would have preferred on this right, album yeah. to this one. Um, but yeah, but to me, like uh, that's, this is no more, there is no uh, place on the album where it's more evident of the sort of uh, polar opposites that this album incorporates than this song here. Right. I mean, this is just a totally goofy. Right. Following song. on from a concept song about Alistair Crowley. <laughs> and then sandwiched in between one about Mother Earth, right? Yeah. And so so the meat of this sandwich is a song about uh, porn movies. going, to, going yeah. to porn movies. Um, but at the same musically time, sounds like ACDC or somebody. <laughs> totally. And, and w- but I, it, it's somewhat endearing to me. Like I, I do like, I like that this album is sort of tonally in two very different places because to me it makes it more interesting as an overall album is that there there is this very playful side to it and there's also songs that are trying to do something more serious and to me that's kind of interesting because a lot of the 80s albums uh it's all play you know we're about to enter that period of the 80s where it's all about sex drugs and rock and roll and um 
and all the songs are goofy and cheesy and all follow a very specific sort of formula. And this is this doesn't fit as neatly into any one box, and I like that about this. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. This is to me probably the weakest song in the album. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm not you know a big fan. I mean, I, I'm I like the fact that they did it to give Kerslake a credit because I'm sure he's over the years earned a lot of money uh, from that as a result. So that was. That was a decent thing to do of them. I just and, wish and it was a better song. <laughs> and on that note, I also like the fact that both Randy Rhodes and Bob Daisley are totally fine playing just a re- regular radio rock song here. Like oh, they're not yeah. doing and anything. It, yeah, crazy. neither of them is doing anything sort of virtuosic at all, yep. are they? Yeah, like they're not. So, so they're not showing up. Curse like they're not overshadowing Curse like on this song either. You know what I mean? So it's I, I kind of like I do I do like that if this was sort of the uh, team effort song that they it was a team effort through and through you know what yeah, i mean yeah uh so yeah and then as you say like that is the sandwich between mr crowley and then track eight uh which is revelation parentheses mother earth Which to me would have fit very nicely after uh, Mr. Crowley, Crowley. yeah, yeah, um, because it's it's again another classical showcase for Randy Rhodes' guitar playing, um, and tonally much more in line with where Aleister Crowley was going. But uh, but again, that duality is kind of something that I that I like, and to me, uh, you know, he's talking about to. Mother, please show the children before it's too late to fight each other. There's no one winning. We must fight all the hate. This this is a theme that uh, shows up in a lot of Ozzy songs. I think it's a it's a simple um, sort of uh, theme that he hits on quite a bit in different songs. Like you know, let, let's all get back together. Yeah, well, and a, and a very commendable one. You know, uh, yeah, don't disagree at all. I I like this track. It's I wouldn't peg it as a favorite on the album, but I do like it. I certainly would place this above the the first two tracks on this album um i'm not saying you, you, this would be a good album opener it would be a terrible <laughs> album opener yeah um but in terms of just how much i like them i yeah you know this ranks fairly high for me um the i mean i prefer the the electrified bit is you know for me the best part of it where the bells come in and the oh music, my God. Uh, music goes like, all like minor key um, this song yeah 
Well, and the chords in between the electric verses, you listen to those just by themselves. You, I could imagine hearing those in like a modern doom metal track, literally like recorded this year. That's really like, wow, okay, you know, that's kind of forward thinking, especially given that Rhodes is not, as we said, not at all a doom guitarist. Well, um, and like to me, like this song, just the way it builds from... And it adds those elements, the bells, and it adds the electric elements. This is one of the few tracks I could see on a Black Sabbath album, basically. And it becomes this freaking Flight of the Bumblebee furious finish (laughs) that I I just love it. Like, this is an example. This is what I was talking about before of, like, when it's time to go, he goes. But he goes in a way that is not a complete contrast to everything that's come before. It builds on everything that's come before. So when it, like, around... You know, like around the two minute and 10 second mark, it almost goes dark, but then it goes back and it waits one more verse before it gets really heavy and really, you know, really metal and stuff like that. And, but then when it, and some of the bass notes too, in the background, they they really add a great effect to the song, but then boom, when he goes on that solo, it is just classically furious, man. And, and the way that that solo ends with everybody else kicking in and it has this sort of urgent closure before it goes to the gong at the end is just, Oh, I lo- like it. It's very stirring. I just absolutely love the way the song comes together and pushes towards the end. For me, it's one of the few places where that, that virtuoso stuff really fits on this album. Actually. Yep. Like, you know, I'm you know, most of the solos on this, I can tell none of them are bad. But, you know, most of them I can take or leave. But, yeah, I agree. That final solo is, you know, I don't know, it just feels right. It feels appropriate. It fits with him playing like a virtuoso, like just all over the place, this incredible, you know, technical skill. Um, And also, uh, much like I said earlier about uh, Pete Steele's vocals, listening to this solo really made me think of the, the influence that this album probably had on Halloween. Yep. Like, couldn't you picture that solo in a Halloween track? Because I certainly could. Oh, absolutely. And I and I think that, without speaking for you, I think the one the the thing where it probably feels the most sort of not out of place is because it spends enough time building to that throughout the song. Yes. So that when he does unleash it, you want it to go there. You know right. what I mean? It's, like, it's, it's not it's straight so in after forty five seconds. Like, yes, yeah, it's yeah. so good. Um, and what I love even more is you have this cl- this classical masterpiece that ends with this smash and then boom right into the last song on the album steal away the night <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's barely any uh, 
In fact, is there even a gap between the two tracks? I mean, it's not even a full second. Right. It, it's just like you hear the gong and then boom, this uh, this uh this song explodes. Now, this is another Steal Away the Night is another like kiss to me. I just keep thinking kiss, but it feels like a kiss song, like a big <laughs> See, you know, I thought a, kiss when we were listening to Goodbye to Romance. <laughs> but like a big a big uh radio rock song here but to me much better than no bone movies like this is this is a much better um i don't know about much it's better <laughs> but i don't know whether i'd say it's much well but better. keep in mind there's a there's a trilogy of these songs on this album one of which is a b-side which is the is uh you looking at me looking at you but this th- so there the, at one point in time a good chunk of the album was dedicated to this sort of radio rock uh sort of thing so i think uh, of those three songs like i feel like this one is is uh it feels more complete than the other one it does the one thing i will say about it is that it it feels like an album closer you know we've talked about this on past shows this does feel like a track that you know fits at the end of an album to you know, be rousing and just kind of yeah. sum sum up the album that's come before it. Um, and you know, the first it, couple of lines of each verse are daisily going up and down yes. <laughs> the neck of the bass. Again, like that, uh, seriously, like if people just gave this a cursory listen and, and haven't really put time into this album, go back and just listen to the bass because he is so underrated. Like, no, he's uh, a monster. Yeah. So he's such a monster. Like he is... It's so good. Like I, it's amazing. But this is another example of like he could just be playing bum 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 bum, and it would be fine. But he's not. He's but how going boring off. Would that be? Yeah. yeah but yeah. but he's also going off in a way that doesn't take away from any other element of the song. And that's that's where I feel like uh, Daisley's uh, mastery comes into into play. Is that he is doing very elaborate things with his bass lines. But they they only add to the song. They, they don't never take away the song. They yeah. never take away. They never overshadow Randy's guitar. They supplement it. They they play off of things. They he plays off of the riffs that are being played during the bridge and stuff. Like so good. Um, and this is just another example because overall it's a silly rock song about you know <laughs> if you feel that you and me could escape and hold the key to a paradise that's true and free, steal away the night. I mean, to me, it's about him locking eyes with somebody in the audience and taking them back to the tour bus. Right. Um, yeah. It's. Uh, I think Daisley's uh, bass it during the verse is actually one of the things that makes it feel like an album closer as well. That ascending sure. and descending phrase that you were talking about. I think that's part of what makes it feel like. Oh, okay. This is building to a climax. This is you know we're we're near the end now. Get ready. Um, I just oh, wish uh, the, that the song was better. Ozzy's performance is... I think this is Ozzy's worst performance on the album. Uh, I just... I don't think his vocal uh, performance on this is good at all. You know what? I don't necessarily disagree with that because I think his delivery of the lyrics during the verses is very straight ahead and not melodic. Right, right. Well, and also the chorus. And the chorus, I really don't like the chorus. I don't like Ozzy's performance. I don't like the well, there's, musicality yeah, there's of it. there's nothing really to it, right? Right, exactly, um, yeah. And, but what's interesting... Know, the rest of this album, for good or ill, has generally had really strong choruses. You know, sure. even on the songs that I'm not that fond of, I will acknowledge that, you know, they have good choruses that if you like the song, you will sing along to them. They are catchy. This, really not. Yeah, no, I, I 
I can totally see that. Like, I'm, this is not a song I'm going to argue with you about for sure because it, it doesn't, <laughs> you know. I but I there are elements of Pick it that I battles. love. The, the bass line <laughs> is the is an element that I love, and I also love that after the chorus, the riff that comes in right after the chorus is heavier than anything else in the song. Yeah, <laughs> like it just locks in. Like, yeah. it sounds like Judas Priest. And yes. then it goes, and the, <laughs> yes, but then <laughs> when the verse starts again, it dials back to radio rock riff, radio rock riff. But then, like after the chorus, it just like smacks you in the face a couple times to make sure you're paying attention. Right and, when he's singing, uh, you got to steal it. Yeah, yes, it's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> even in a song that you could argue is maybe a, one of the weaker songs on the album, like there are elements to it that make it interesting, and that's that's you know one thing overall that I love about this album is that it's it, to me each song has interesting elements. And I, I I think it also, in terms of standing the test of time, is when you look at the songs that Ozzy plays live, when you look at the songs that people associate with Ozzy's solo career, like there are at least three songs on this album that are thought of when you say Ozzy Osbourne. And so as a as a solo album, as a, this this first album, um I I think it just and again, having sold over six million copies, clearly it did all right for itself. But it it uh I, I, my hope is that people had only heard a couple of the hits off of this album and then found that there's a lot more to dig into when they go and listen to the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually wouldn't disagree that if you like, if you've heard Ozzy's hits and really, really like them, then you will like this album a lot more than I did. Uh, you know, I think th- this is a, a good summation of where his solo career went. And, you know, like if you like that stuff, you will love this album. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, I was just never into Ozzy's solo stuff. Even the singles, I just, you know, kind of take or leave them. On this album, I would keep Mr. Crowley, Suicide Solution and Revelation and the rest of them, you know, I can just take or leave. Yeah. Uh, you know, not really into the rest of it. But, you know, that's, like well, I say, I'm just not that into his solo stuff. If you like his solo stuff, then you'll probably feel exactly the opposite. <laughs> Well, and speaking about leaving, uh, there was a B-side, and that is, if you're listening to the 2011 remaster, track 10 is You Looking at Me Looking at You. I made a mistake on the last song. This song to me is about him locking eyes with someone and taking him back to the tour bus. The steal away the night is a little more about uh, more romanticized love, I think uh, than this one is, but this one uh, you got some cowbell in there. It's very much like another radio rock 
um, kind of goofy, upbeat song. Pictures building in my head, nothing done and nothing said. Talking to me with your eyes, what they say is no surprise. You know, you looking at me, looking at you, I want to talk to you. Like, the, I feel like his delivery of the chorus and his delivery of the lines is better than Steal Away the Night. And to me, this is an example of a B-side that you could have replaced either No Bone Movies or Steal Away the Night. Um, probably No Bone Movies. I would have slotted this one in. You looking at me, looking at you. It's a fun song. It's a catchy song. I find myself singing this song all the time. And it's a song that didn't make it onto the initial album, which is, you know, like we talked about at the top of the show, there's some great B-sides out there that people probably have never heard. And yeah. I was not really familiar with this song and absolutely love it. I, uh, I must, I didn't hear it. I, uh, my copy of the album is the original. It doesn't have this track. So, uh, I, and I've never heard it. Okay. <laughs> so, so let me just but, quickly go through the other but two. Hey, I'll, I'll take, I'll take your word for it. Yes. That, uh, that it could replace no bone movies. It, yep. you, you know, apart from the fact that that would remove Kurz. Let me give you the Anthony Johnston review of this. <laughs> It could replace no bone movies, but it could also not go on the album at all, and I'd be perfectly fine with that. Right, right. That would that would be your uh, review of that. Now, track eleven <laughs> on the 2011 remaster is the "Goodbye to Romance" version with only the guitar and vocals. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Which, good lord, is beautiful. Um, if you like this song and you like Randy Rhodes, holy crap, amazing. Um, and then the last one is a one minute and thirteen second. It's just called RR. It is essentially an outtake from the Blizzard of Oz sessions, but it reminds me of like uh, if he went in to plug in in the studio for five minutes before they started recording or anybody else got there. And it's just a minute and 13 seconds of him like doing like warmups. And so it's just kind of riffy and all over the place with some soloing and stuff like that. But it gives you such a good window into the energy that this guy and the love that he had for playing guitar because it's just him playing nothing. It's just him playing whatever comes to his mind. And it's what this special edition ends on. And just what a, what a perfect exclamation point on this as a Randy Rhodes album. Um, just absolutely beautiful. So if you, if you haven't checked out the 2011 remaster and you like this album, boy, there are some nice little extras on this album. Now we would be remiss if we did not talk about, Randy Rhodes' death uh, really quickly. So on March 18th, 1982, uh, they had just played their last show at the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. And the next day, the band was heading to a festival in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Apparently, when they stopped over in Leesburg, Florida, and this is uh, Ozzy Osbourne that's telling this, they had to fix uh, the air conditioning on the bus. So there was an airstrip on the property that they had stopped at that had small helicopters and planes. And Ozzy said, without permission, the tour bus driver and private pilot, Andrew Acock took a single engine Beechcraft F 35 plane registered to a Mike Parton. Uh, on the first flight, they took the keyboardist and the tour manager. Then they landed and took a second flight with Rhodes and makeup artist, Rachel Youngblood. During the second flight, attempts were made to buzz the tour bus. Uh, and he succeeded in two separate passes, but the third time they came to buzz by the tour bus, he, uh, I believe, the plane's wings clipped the top of the tour bus, breaking the wing into two parts, sending the plane spiraling out of control, and the initial impact killed uh, Rhodes and Youngblood, and then the plane 
basically crashed and burned. And so Ozzy was on the tour bus when this happened and basically Jesus. wakes up to find that there's been a plane crash. And then they later find out that Randy Rhodes is one of the people and their makeup artists are, are on the on the plane and died. And if I remember correctly, Randy Rhodes was afraid of flying and basically they convinced him to go and take this flight. So a stupid one-off thing where they're screwing around and trying to fly by the tour bus results in the world losing one of the greatest guitar players of all time at 25 years old, which is just absolutely amazing on so many levels that that happened, that that was it. And uh, there is, I just want to really quickly quote, I think it was Lee Kerslake who talked about, uh, yes, so Fuse asked Lee Kerslake, when did you get the word of the crash that took the life of Randy Rhodes? And Kerslake said, I was in Houston, Texas with Bob Daisley and Uriah Heep on March 19th, 1982. We checked into the hotel and immediately went to a club in Houston called uh, Cardi's. I was already sitting at the bar when Bob Daisley came into the bar. I turned and looked at Bob and said, man, you've all gone white. What's wrong? And Bob said, Lee, there was a plane crash this morning and Randy was in it and he's dead. He said, that was it. Oh God, to hear that. I just turned and cried my eyes out. He said, Bob and me were crying our eyes out over him because we loved him. He was such a lovely guy. We have had so much fun with him. We had magic. People like Sharon, Don, and Jerry, they haven't got a bloody clue. They're so devoid of it. They're good at the business. That magic was beyond belief. We were all meant to have met. It was a wonderful thing for us to all get together and to turn out two of the greatest albums of all time. So I think that sentiment is what you will often hear about when people talk about Randy Rhodes, who knew him. Um, just that he was a great person and they were so devastated by his loss. And, you know, for me, it's I'm just so thankful that we have these two albums that you can go back and listen to and hear this kid who died at 25 and was so amazingly talented. We just talked about in the Black Sabbath episode, the evolution of sound. And how over time these bands come together and they find their sound. And uh, they never got a chance to really do that with this band. And who knows what that would have turned out to be? Who knows what Randy Rhodes' style would have gone on to be? I mean, more so than most, he had established it through practice and through his classical influences earlier. So he was farther ahead, certainly, than a lot of people probably would have been at his age. But he was only 25. Right, yeah. That's still a lot of time left I mean, to mature and grow as an artist. Can you imagine? And when we think of like, you know, we're, we're kind of out of the era of guitar gods. Um, but in the 80s, there was, there was so many great lead guitar players. And then when you think about the ones that are still around now and how their style has evolved and who they've kind of gone on to become, like, it's unbelievable. Like, it, th- these albums are really a, a time capsule of this amazing talent that uh, was taken far too soon, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a shame that, to my mind, Diary of a Madman is a, not as good an album as this. Um, you know, the, the second down with, again, mu- again, musically, not saying like that Rhodes', Rhodes performance on it is is great, but uh, like as, as an album, I, I do think this is better, actually, than madman but then who knows you know what bark at the moon would have been if sure 
as you say, if Rhodes had been writing it, you know, and like for the third album, rather than who was it? Who was guitarist on that? Uh, Jakey e. Lee. Right, right. From um, Rat, wasn't it? Uh, I believe he was in very early incarnations of Rat, and then he went on to form Badlands with. Uh, right. Oh, okay. Which is. Uh, th- I'm not ruling out a Badlands episode sometime in the future because <laughs> that that's one of the most difficult things to think about when you talk about Ozzy is uh, there. I want to talk about all of his guitar players. I want to talk about Jake E. Lee. I want to talk about Zach Wild. Right, um, I was going to say Zach Wild. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, in terms of his tone, is much more in line with the Black Sabbath stuff because he's he's very low and heavy in terms of. Well, and he's theory. very influenced by Sabbath. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but we always have Black Label Society you know, to talk about with him, but, but with Randy, I really wanted to, um, be able to visit this. And yeah, you, you talked about Diary of a Madman, uh, Over the Mountain is one of my favorite Aussie songs of all time, but as, as a whole album, I prefer this one. I prefer Blizzard yeah, of Oz. I, was saying, I, th- overall, I think it is I think more this complete. is a stronger album. Yeah. Yep. And I think the special edition really has the, a, a few nice extras on it. So, um, I have seen Ozzy, uh, at least a couple times in concert, I was trying to go back and see which ones I actually saw him on at Ozfest. I believe I saw the Ozfest 20, 2003 tour, uh, which was in August in Hartford, Connecticut. That one had Corn, Marilyn Manson, Disturbed, and Chevelle on the main stage, and he played Mr. Crowley. He played I Don't Know. He played Goodbye to Romance. He played Suicide Solution, and he played Crazy Train. So lots of songs wow. off of this album. Uh, in 2006, uh, System of a Down, Disturbed, and Avenged Sevenfold were on the main stage, and he played a much shorter set. Um, I don't know, Mr. Crowley, Suicide Solution, and I think that's it from that album. But clearly, at least album, at least three songs in the set list when he plays, you know, a full even a set. short set, yeah. yeah, yeah, from from this album. So, uh, so yeah, as far as his first break from Black Sabbath, like. He clearly established himself because he went on to sell more albums as a solo artist. Right. Well, and also maintained this sort of style as well. You know, yes, sounds change and guitarists change and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, again, if you like his singles, you will like this album. And if you like this album, I kind of feel like you'll like most of Ozzy's solo career. You know, as I said, it's not really for me. I prefer his days with Sabbath, but yeah. But if you do like this, then you will. He's been fairly consistent, I think. Just yeah. in terms of, yeah, if you like one, you'll probably like another. To me, everything up through No Rest for the Wicked, I think, is great. Um, and then it starts to become diminishing returns for me. But uh, I'm excited that he talked about, I think I recently posted on the Facebook group, that he's going to be going back out on tour with uh, Zach Wild, ah, which right. is really kind of awesome. And I hope that that results in Zach coming back for one more album with him because i think that uh they have written some great stuff together so so we'll see about that but yeah so uh ho- so hopefully people who weren't that familiar with ozzy solo stuff got a little bit of something out of this and for those of us who are ozzy first and black sabbath second sort of fans like i was uh this <laughs> the, this is sort of the companion piece to that discussion absolutely yeah all right so okay before we get to homework then let's just go through the usual uh sign-offs thank you for listening everyone and remember if you enjoy the show Please spread the word, rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now. And don't forget that you can now find us on the Google Play podcast store as well. Uh, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. And if you want to get in touch, go to thrash it for links to email and Twitter. Or, of course, join the Facebook group, which is generally very active. 
at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashing out. Absolutely. Homework. Uh, My turn. And remember my theme, if you like, for this uh, volume of the show is albums that changed the landscape of metal. Um, I have a feeling I know where we're going, but I I want you to go for uh, it. I'm pretty sure you don't. Uh, (laughs) uh, We are going to go quite a bit later than uh i'm not going to do these chronologically so it's not like we're going to go from black Sabbath, you know and and then do an album from 1977 or whatever so uh you know there have been a lot of movements in metal over the years and uh what what for you and i certainly of people our age there is almost no bigger seismic shift in metal than basically what happened when grunge came along uh and so we're going to talk about never mind no we're not we're not <laughs> no but we are going to talk about an album that you could argue its success was because of albums like never mind uh and certainly you know in a in a roundabout way and i'll i'll make the argument for as to why i believe that when we talk about it next time and so we are going to talk about vulgar display of power oh from pantera now yeah I thought you were going to Nevermind. Uh, That's where I thought you were going with this one. No, I thought we were no. going into the grunge, which uh, I will just say, for the record... Hey, Nevermind is a great album, yeah. but even I would not argue that it's a metal album. It's a, it's a good hard rock album. It is not a metal album. Now, Dirt or Super Unknown or Bad Motorfinger, sure, those are metal albums. Sure. But, but Nevermind, I, I wouldn't class that as metal. I would be okay with us talking about that sometime, and I do not like Nirvana, but that's just me. Um, because I, I feel like it's one of those albums, but vulgar display of power, bring it. Like I'm, that was one that was on my list too, to eventually get to. So I'm super excited to go back and revisit that. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, that is what we're going to be talking about. I, is there anybody out there who doesn't, who hasn't already got a copy of vulgar display of power, who hasn't heard it? Uh, I suspect probably not, but if you haven't, if you are young enough, uh, or just weren't into that part of the scene that you haven't heard it, go and grab a copy of Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera from 92, I think it was. Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah, 92, yeah, from 1992. And listen to that and then come back in... Because you know, was Cowboys 1990? Uh, 90 or 91, yeah. One yeah, or two, okay, yeah. 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 Um, so, well, and, and this is part... Of, again, I'll explain why I'm choosing this album rather than Cowboys uh in terms of sort of my theme so yeah yeah, go and grab a copy listen to it and we will see you back here probably in round about another month's time all right thanks everybody see you later